0: VOCM presents Open Line. The opinions expressed on this show are not necessarily those of the station. And now your host, Patty Daly.
1: Well, all right, and good morning to you. Thank you very much for tuning in to the program. It's Friday, June the 9th. This is Open Line. I'm your host, Patty Daly, David Williams. He's producing this. Come on with an edition of the program. So if you're in the St. John's Metro region, the number to dial to get in the queue and on the air, 709-273-5211. Elsewhere, it's toll-free long distance, one 590 vocm which is 8626. So brief reprieve from the Falker yesterday afternoon in town. Got sunny there for a while yesterday afternoon. It was actually pretty hot. But it reminds me, you know, my father, my late father, he truly disliked people complaining about the weather, and every time he went and did it, regardless if it was too cold, too hot, too rainy, too snowy, whatever it was, he would very quickly remind you, that is way worse somewhere else. And I always got a bit of a kick out of that, but he wasn't wrong. So whether it be across the country, you know the story regarding how much of the country is on fire, but here in this province up on the great northern peninsula, the folks at Roddington and Bidearm, Had some pretty serious flooding, or they have some pretty serious flooding. Hopefully the rain eases up today so they can get to the matter of the cleanup. The community's been cut in half, so one half access to the hospital, one half access to the grocery store. Actually traveling back and forth by boat. Some 30 homes have had some flooding damage, some really serious. School is closed, so hopefully they recover, get cleaned up, and back in action. If you have an update from that portion of the Great Northern Peninsula, you're welcome on the show today. A couple of quickies as we ease in. So tonight at Mary Brown Center, a tip-off at 7 o'clock, is the very first playoff game for the Newfoundland Rogues in their home barn. So they're playing Albany. They're winners of 10 straight. So I'm sure they, like many other basketball fans, including my uh, producer here, David Williams, keeping an eye on the NBA Finals where there's some historic performances by some of the Denver Nugget players, Jokic and Canadian Jamal Murray. Jamal Murray is probably the most underrated superstar in the league. So good luck to the Rogues. Tonight, and not so fast, everybody had the Florida Panthers written off, got back in the Stanley Cup Final Series last night with a 3-2 win in overtime, trailed the Vegas Golden Knights by 2-1, but they are back in. Maybe you're watching some tennis. I know I watch a lot of tennis. So they're at the French Open, of course, right? Second major of the year. It was on this date in 2013 that Rafa, Rafael Nadal, Spaniard, beat his fellow Spaniard, David Ferrer, became the first man to win one single slam eight separate times. I think Nadal has like 12 or 13 French Opens, and his career is just about done, but anyway, let's go. Yesterday, I would imagine just like many of you, and in our house, all four of us were home, and then the phones start buzzing, and of course, it's an Amber Alert. First question is, is this the first Amber Alert that we've had in this province? I don't know. I seem to think it is. But it doesn't matter the age of the person who's missing or where they're missing or how long they're missing. You know that the family would be absolutely stressed to the max. So I think there's something unique when it's a young person missing because people's minds go to very dangerous and dark places. So now the Amber Alert has been lifted and they've located 14-year-old Melissa Morell and apparently she's safe, so the thought was that she'd been kidnapped. I'm not in the inner sanctum at the RNC, so I don't know what's going on necessarily. But when she has been, pardon me, she was last seen last Friday, and it was Thursday around 5.30 before the Amber Alert was triggered, even though a couple of days prior, they said for people to keep keep their eyes peeled, because the thought was someone who was an unauthorized adult was trying to sneak Melissa Morrell out of the province, headed towards New Brunswick. So I'm certainly pleased and glad that she's been found and safe and sound. We don't even know if there's been an arrest made or any other circumstances or details surrounding it, but... That one question, is this the first Amber Alert in the province? Maybe not. It's the first one I can recall. Anyway, and some of the details and the timing are a bit confusing. Whether or not someone has been arrested, also a little bit confusing. But I guess the ultimate and the summary is she has been found. And also there's the story of a fellow who I didn't know the name of the person who was missing out around Hollywood. I think it was. And it was a father of some fellows that I know. And as the family of Ignatius Pickett. They are thrilled that their dad has been found missing for a couple of nights, and we all know there's been some pretty cool desperate conditions out there to be lost in the woods overnight for two nights in a row. So they just want to thank a few people. So Central Avalon Ground Search and Rescue, they're out of Holywood. The Rover Search and Rescue out of town. Avalon North Wolverines Ground Search and Rescue, they're out of Bay Roberts. Triple Bay Eagles ground search and rescue out of Clarenville, and then everyone involved with the uh, JRCC Squadron out in Gander, that's uh, Squadron 103, the RCMP, K-9 services from the RCMP and the RNC, the government, the Rodden Gun Club, who gave up their facility as the command post location, and a couple of very specifics, Danny Williams, Jr., and Robert uh, Carroll, who's a helicopter pilot who I know. So just thankfully, the Pickett family wanted me to take an opportunity to thank everyone involved now that their dad has been found safe and sound. So more good news right there. All right, so (laughs) we all know that there's pockets of the city and pockets of different communities around the province where neighborhood violence is at an all-time high. You have to think a lot of it goes back to drugs. Now, yes, there's probably going to be some implication regarding organized crime or disorganized crime, but we know that this is happening. The downtown core of the city of St. John's gets some of that focus. Why? Because we actually use George Street in part of our promotion regarding tourism. And of course, lots of people would want to be a patron on a weekend night, for instance, or want to go see a band. So there has been a lot of violence reported, and a lot of violence has probably not been reported in the downtown. So they struck this downtown safety coalition, and their members are varied. The RNC, downtown St. John's, the George Street Association, the city, Destination St. John's, Hospitality NL, Music NL, and of course the provincial government. A lot of the stories started to come to pass when some musicians were speaking out saying, there is a problem here, and there is no one there to help us. So. There was a funding announcement yesterday, so $180,000. And look, we have to provide a safe environment, regardless of where you are, but $180,000 for an education campaign and better lighting, which is long overdue. But, you know, see something, say something. The RNC have been asked if they would embed police officers in this effort, and they say until their suggestions made that the chief is not going to commit one way or the other to it, But I think we would all agree, there's nothing slows you down quite like uh, a squad car on the highway or wherever you're driving. And there's nothing that provides a safer environment than the presence of police. So yes, better lighting. And yes, education campaigns. And yes, maybe identifying people as they peruse the downtown, maybe in and out of the clubs, so that we know who's coming and going. And I'm no expert in policing, but if you had two separate foot patrols with two officers each walking in opposing directions from Adelaide to George, back and forth, back and forth, probably go a long way to putting some control on this. And then there's the concept that it's the lack of cabs, and where the cabs all line up, that provide an opportunity for maybe the zoned out, drugged out criminal. And so what role does that play? On that front, we can talk about the violence from a pocket where you live, a neighborhood in town, downtown, or anything under the sun on that front, but Now we understand that the city of St. John's is furthering their look at adding a ride share like Uber or Lyft to the transportation fleet. You know, in other cities across the country, it is very efficient. It was first uh, authorized for city use in this country, I think, in Edmonton in 2016. So looking at bylaws, looking at the potential to bring a ride sharing app, now I don't think Uber has approached us necessarily and said, hey, we'd love to come to town. What's the situation? What's the setup? But when you try to create an environment and to regulate it properly, and if it's been in Canada since 2016, I wonder is there an opportunity to simply copy and paste? copy and paste, Because we don't have that unique a situation here in the city or wherever else Uber would like to provide their services. And it may not be the be-all and end-all, but adding to the fleet, adding to the opportunities to get in and out of wherever you are, from the airport, from downtown, to a hotel, to your buddies, to a party, whatever the case may be, one hundred and eighty thousand dollars worth of funding to try to get a grip on the downtown violence but i really do think if it doesn't end up with embedded police officers then i'm not so sure education and lighting is going to cure it the way people hope that it does and on that front so the nlc remarkably over the course of a couple of years they were suffering some enormous losses based on theft People were coming in with knives and guns and needles and threatening the staff, and consequently the staff were told to just stand back. Stand back, let them take it. So they were trending towards like a half a million dollars a year in losses. Apparently with adding those independent security officers, it's been, the theft has been reduced dramatically, which is the good news. But there's a lot of crime and stuff on my mind here this morning, obviously. And how about that story where a flight, uh, I can't remember the carrier, from Detroit to Paris, or Paris to Detroit, so there was an unruly passenger, and they had to land out at Stevenville Airport. The RCMP responded, and now CERT, the Serious Incident Response Team, is investigating the arrest and how it went down, whether or not there was any, as they refer to in American television, pr- police brutality. But CERT plays an important role. And in, d- in addition to that, you know, whether it be with First Voice and the RNC talking about issues about policing, ethically and otherwise, a civilian-led oversight body, I really do think, is a good solution here, or a part of a solution. I also think it would be good for law enforcement. I know full well. They don't want a bunch of civilians looking over their shoulder in any sort of formal capacity. But when we have issues with law enforcement, and the public faith in, or respect for, maybe civilian oversight would also be helpful for the police. Anyway, there's a lot to all of those things. You want to talk about it? We can do it. Oh this is a curious one. Not that I think it's a good idea or a bad idea, just throw it out there because I thought it was weird. So we have a problem with speeding and reckless driving, aggressive driving, distracted driving, drunk driving, driving under the influence of drugs In this problems. We know it to be true. So when it comes to fines and just how many millions of dollars in unpaid fines are out there, but here's a story coming from uh, Finland. So what they're doing, it's not just Finland. They're the, they're the first Scandinavian country to impose this, but it's other countries in the uh, European Union have done it as well. It's called day fines. And the amount you'll be fined is commensurate with your income. It's <laughs> sort of a bizarre way to do it. And I'm not, I don't know if it's good or bad or indifferent, but apparently one of Finland's richest men, he got caught speeding. He was going 50 miles per hour in a 30-mile-per-hour zone. As a result, his traffic fine, hundred and €121,000, right? Now, there would be a floor so that the poorest of Finns would still pay a fairly significant penalty for breaking speed laws in particular, but the story goes on to talk about you also get a driving suspension based on how fast you're going beyond the posted speed limit. And in this case, a $121,000 fine, or euro fine, and a 10-day suspension. They go on to talk about in other countries where people are getting fines: 63,000 euro, 95,000 euro. Does that make any sense? I don't know. Seems to be getting great support in that particular country. I just thought it was a curious way to go about it. You want to talk about it? All right. So in healthcare, so the Newfoundland Health Services, which is an amalgamation of the four regional health authorities, so they've got a new website and social media channels, Fun, to talk about the process for consolidating all of those four regional health authorities. But you know, we know there's a laundry list of things to talk about inside that. But I do think that this story we broke up, we didn't break, we spoke to yesterday about joint replacement wait times and backlogs. The more I thought about it yesterday, the more I thought, this is a big story. And this is a growing problem. So the province thought that there was a better way to do it. You know, whether it be through day surgery or expanding these uh, surgical opportunities to Carbonair and St. Anthony. Even though it does come across quite strange to me that if someone living in town, for instance, needs a knee replaced or hip replaced, it ends up getting flown to St. Anthony. You know, that kind of confused me a little bit. But there's 1,900 people on the wait list. It hasn't really chipped away at the surgical backlog. The wait times are still way beyond national benchmarks. And the letter that was sent by one of the surgeons to, at that point, Eastern Health, and here's the quote, and I don't know how we grapple with this, but here's what it says. The peak surgery rate occurred in 2018-19 with close to 1,100 joint surgeries completed. But the demand growing as the province's population ages. The letter concludes that doing that many surgeries here won't stop the waitlist from growing. Projections show that completing 1,100 cases annually will still result in waitlist growth to 4,500 people by the third quarter of 2029, which is right around the corner. So that story, I think, gets a little bit more attention and needs a bit more attention. Where the solution is, like most things in healthcare, I'm glad it's not my job. Alright, a couple of quick ones. So today, there's going to be a protest and a counter-protest, 12 noon at Confederation Building, all about pride events in the provinces K-12 schools. So regardless of what side you're on here, one thing I hope for is that it doesn't get out of hand, because it's emotional, no question. And in other places where we've had the counter and counter-protesters in the same area, it hasn't really gone very well. So the thought, of course, there's, there's a lot to say about this stuff. But it's remarkable that, you know, inside the world of inclusivity, whether you have a guest speaker in your classroom like Katerina Roxon, or talking about autism or speaking with someone from the CNIB or talking with people who come from diverse backgrounds or ethnic backgrounds or different countries of origin, bringing different traditions and culture into our understanding of the world. Because school is not simply about reading, writing, and arithmetic. It's about more than that. So the conversation now has gone all the way to everyone involved in these Pride events is grooming your children for some nefarious sexual wants and needs, which is a remarkable way that things have changed so quickly on this front. And I guess my ultimate hope here is is that it's It goes off without a hitch, uh, violence speaking, at Confederation Building today. The NLTA and the NLESD, or I guess Terry Hall, who's now running education on that front versus, you know, it's all amalgamated into the department. They're basically saying enough is enough. And so we'll see what the protest entails, and we will absolutely take your call if you'd like to speak about that particularly complex requiring nuanced conversation because it's not a one-size-fits-all, but we're happy to take it on if you're so uh, inclined. All right, I wonder what the FFAW are up to in Ottawa and how their plea for uh, up to upwards of $100 million for compensating for the decrease in the market value of snow crab. They're couching it different ways, but yeah, there's going to be some significant troubles for folks involved in the snow crab uh, fishery this year. And of course, they're also asking for employment insurance to be restructured so you need fewer days or weeks to qualify because, obviously, a six-week delay in getting the boats on the water. I'm not so sure how that's going to be received. But anything that you want to talk about today, I'm into it. We're on Twitter. We're VOCM open Line. Uh, one thing. Oh, this from Roger. He says, there was an Amber Alert. Uh, last fall, Someone uh, was missing in CBS. Okay, thanks for that, Roger. Uh, that's email. It's VOCM.com. On Twitter, we're, op- we're VOCM Open Line. You know what to do. My favor is when you pick up the phone. This morning, we're going to begin with mining. There's a mining conference out on the Verp Peninsula. Lloyd Hayden joins us right after the break. Don't go away. Welcome back to the program. Let's say good morning to the president of the Verp Peninsula Chamber of Commerce. That's Lloyd Hayden. Good morning, Lloyd. You're on the air. Good morning, Teddy. How are oh, you today? Excellent today. Thanks for asking. How about you?
2: Great, same thing. We're hitting the road, running today. Busy day, busy weekend.
1: What's happening at the conference? What's on the top of the agenda?
2: Well, you know, we uh, we, we got the uh, our, you know, our gala dinner tonight with the minister here, and and things like that. But uh, we got some you know other presentations tonight. And uh, but the, the, I guess the, the main thing is the uh, is the Saturday presentations. We have uh, ten. Uh, paper presentations by different companies and and service sectors and information sessions by by different uh we got nova doing their's on uh, some of their technologies on smarter data driven mining we got the department of industry energy and technology we got bay minerals they're looking at transforming mine waste into sustainable resources uh Ramler metals and mining is doing a presentation update on their situation here on the peninsula they've been shut down for a little while. Uh, we got some sulcumman corporations doing a big uh, project researching on the type of Irish type gold on the Bayer Peninsula as it relates to the same rock formations over in Ireland uh, we got some uh, the college North Atlantic doing a presentation and we got Bailey's J. Bailey shoreline Angregus doing one on their mining project and the uh, using the uh, uh, the waste rock and and shipping it you know, down you know down to the U S and things like that and maritime resources of course it's the mine and it's getting set up in Kings Point they're uh, doing their presentation today What's more
1: yeah it's look you know we talk about oil and North, and we talk about the fishery and the snow crab and we talk about the wind the hydrogen ammonia but mining has enormous growth potential there. Whether it be in Gold and Marathon or Rambler getting back into uh, action here, the different minerals on the island, critical minerals in Labrador, the mining sector kind of gets left by the wayside when in fact, it has not only plays a big role today, but is certainly going to grow.
2: Oh, it certainly is, and, and I mean, just that Rambler property, you know, people are looking at well, it's just a little downturn. There's 20 years left on that in that property uh, mining, uh, you know, at the rate we were mining today. So, you know, there is a, it's like, buying the lottery ticket, you don't know if you're going to win. But if you buy the Rambler mines, we know it's there. It's, and it's only a matter. And everything's in, in place. And it's only a matter in production. And we're back with, you know, 250 workers on the ground. Again, full steam.
1: What kind of impact does mining have legitimately on the Bayvert Peninsula? Because, you know, when we talk about different parts of the province outside the more heavily populated northeast Avalon, it's different things. If you're down in Harbour Breton, it's aquaculture. If you're in Bayvert, of course, you'll have the fishery and other contributions. But mining must be a significant part of the GDP.
2: Oh, certainly is. It's you know, like Ram had a little, uh, 220 workers, 230 workers, uh, single goal. They were up to 120. Uh, Guy J Bailey and uh, Springdale uh, Resources, they were support group, and then and they're doing, of course, Guy J Bailey and Shoreline Aggregates. They're doing their rock, they're uh, you know taking their aggregates and shipping around. Uh, you know, 150, 180 people there. And you know you're looking at you know, around five to six hundred people employed right on the Beaver Peninsula, and then and and contributing to the economy as a whole. Really, it's a b- really big, important uh, you know for the peninsula here. It's it's between the fishery and that, and the forestry. That's the three things here, and and mining is contributing big time in the last ten years for sure.
1: Yeah, I mean I know this is not a Beaver Peninsula comment, but you know it's worth reminding. And there's nothing free and clean and perfect uh, in this world or green. But there's all sorts of work being done. Regardless, if you have gold, want to buy gold, if you want an EV or a new laptop or a cell phone, we're the only democratic country on the face of the earth with every single component for those batteries in this pro- in this country. So we got to latch onto that, uh, big time. Anything else you want to offer this morning, Lloyd? Well, we have you. Anything under the sun regarding the Chamber of Commerce and what's going on?
2: Well, you know, we've we've been active. This is uh, next year is going to be our 50th year in the chamber. Uh, next year, and this year is our 34th annual mining conference here, so we've been, uh, and we we picked our theme this year, Rocks, Resources, and Resilience, and uh, and it is, and it, we've got a resilient organization, we've got a resilient people on the Bay River Peninsula. Peninsula, uh, you know, like we've been down when the asbestos went and things like that, but, but right now the Chamber is still, uh, still forged ahead, we do have a full-time employee here, and uh, we do, you know, different functions year the year, but uh, uh, we tourism one and we got a municipality one in the fall but uh, the mining is the is the one that we i guess we sort of latch on to and we've been doing it for years but uh, yeah the chamber is pretty active here and and of course you know we, we you know with the mines you know we get the hotels full and we get the grocery stores full and and the restaurants and things like that so so it certainly uh, is it is important to the peninsula, and the chamber she realizes that as well
1: uh listen good luck this week and enjoy the conference and thanks for the time this morning lloyd
2: Thank you very much. Thanks, Patty, for having
1: me on. Very, uh, my pleasure. Take good care. Bye-bye. That's Lloyd Hayden. He's the president of the Bayver Peninsula Chamber of Commerce. Not really a Chamber of Commerce weather day out there in town today, but anywho, let's go. Line number one, Todd, you're on the air. Morning, Patty. How are you
3: this morning? Best kind. How about you? Oh, goodbye. good, bud. Um, good. Colin, Ian, I wanted to pick up on some of the conversation uh, that has been uh, kind of resurgent the week about uh, access. It was uh, great to hear the folks from the Board of Trade uh, chiming in, and, and I believe they're holding a, a meeting and a discussion regarding access. And, of course, uh, John Steele, uh, with his, his great uh, words, great speech at the, uh, the Energy NL conference last week, just uh, highlighting the importance of, of access to the province, not only for tourism, but for you know, the economy as a whole. Um, you, know, and, 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 you know, in my role with h we spent a lot of time obviously talking about this for the last number of years and it's been going on for years and years and years as we all know and it's kind of over the last number with pandemics and everything else is kind of getting more difficult. But I, I think Mr. Steele, ha- you know, really put his finger on the point of, uh, you know, that, that government invests in all kinds of things, to you know, in significant ways and the payback on an investment in, in a broader access for Newfoundland and Labrador to, you know, to the world at large, is a, a, a an easy win for government, um, you know, and I think that you know government has done some work in this regard, uh, but I think that they're, they're not they're, they're not haven't put the importance on it from a, a, an investment uh, perspective that they should, because I think that it's the type of thing that obviously it brings more uh, you know more economic activity it makes it easier to get here it makes the destination more attractive from a tourism perspective and, and those types of things have instant economic benefits that trickle out right throughout the whole economy of the whole province
1: i got a lot of reaction uh, given to me face to face email and otherwise to mr Steele's speech You know, you tailor your presentation or your speech to the people you're uh, speaking to or speaking with. And so at Energy NL, of course, he'd make reference to there's no need for an oil executive from Stavanger to have to fly to Toronto to get to St. John's, that kind of stuff. But when he got himself in a bit of hot water in some corners is when he made the, uh, the point about how the province funds the ferry service. You know, we get about $5 million back, but we put about $80 million in. And immediately I knew how that was going to be uh, received in so many corners of the province, and the emails were really quite vicious that I got, even though I had nothing to say about it. It wasn't my speech. But he does make a fair point here. And, you know, it's not just about oil executives and the hoity-toities and the 1% or the muckety There is a collective economic upside if it's easier and more accessible to get to this province. It just is. Whether it be for you t- or me to go, to wherever. I'm going to Toronto to visit my sister this summer. If it was easier to get in and out, that would be better for me. If it was easier for a tourist to come, there's nothing like the injection of -of out-of-province money to give the economy a nice shot in the arm. So there's an upside across the board here. It's not just for folks who have deep pockets and are in big business, but that's how it was heard, but that's not how I've ever thought about the issue. Look, if other jurisdictions and other airports get into the trenches Compete with other airport authorities to woo one carrier or another to their location. The classic example is we lost the direct flight to Dublin. It went to Halifax, Stanfield. They've consequently lost it. If I think if we just took a five-year window, what would it look like if we had either one or both? Direct to Heathrow, direct from Newark to here. I think people would very quickly say, wow, that really did work, because we went from half a million to a million tourists in three, four, five years, which is good for everybody. I don't have anything to do with tourism. I know you do. I don't, but I think it's good. It's be exactly what the doctor ordered.
3: No, for sure. And, you know, I think that the point that, that John was making, and I think he did it well, because obviously picking on, or I shouldn't say picking on, but highlighting the, the you know, the ferry. Provincial ferry uh, uh, system and the ec- the economic uh, investment that the province puts into that um, is obviously going to you know get people excited and get people talking. And I guess the point, you know, the deeper point is, government spends money on all kinds of things, um, and you know the return on some of government's investments is very hard to measure. Uh, and I think that uh, you know if you look at the opportunity to push money into access. The direct, you know, measurable return on that is there and easy for government to do. You know, and easy for government to to get ahead, get their head around. And and I think for someone who's been in the tourism industry for a lot of years, I mean, government spends money in tourism. You know, they invest in, uh, you know, all kinds of things. Obviously, marketing has been, you know, a big chunk of the tourism budget for many, many years. Uh, you know, the the government announced uh, investment in. a a trail system in most I think that was 20 or $25 million over a period of time. Uh, you know, and all these things, and they're all necessary and vital, and, you know, product development and, and better things on the ground, and bigger and better things on the ground for Newfoundland and Labrador tourism particularly, and for the economy in general, is obviously a positive. But, you know, I liken it to, you know, it's like, a, you know, painting a living room with the front doors locked. You know, if people can't get in to see it, well, what's the point of investing in it? And I think that we need to, you know, we need to understand that, you know, if we build, if, you know, if we get the people here, then it'll make it easier for operators and for government and other people to invest and build a bigger, better, you know, particularly tourism industry, but an economy, a bigger, better economy as a whole. And, and you know, the, the, we are a small place over so a big uh, geographic area, and we need the traffic of people, you know, locals going and coming, people coming in to visit. You know, we, we, we should be very, very, very disappointed in ourselves that our tourism numbers have stagnated as they have over the last 10 years. And we should, you know, realize the potential that that has. And government investment and access in a much more significant way than they've done is the key to that because individual operators, you know, can only do what they can do. You know, you know some some tour operator in Grosemore in, in can't get Air Canada to fly here. But the Newfoundland and Labrador government can, is they put their money on the table. And, you know, there's lots of excuses and reasons why it's difficult, but these planes and pilots are going somewhere. And the money makes the move. And a serious, as John said in his, in his comments, a serious investment, not just a $1 million or $2 million, a serious investment in, in this type of access is something that's required, past due, and is something that we should all continue to lobby for from all sectors of the economy in the province to help the whole thing, you know, to float all of our boats.
1: You know, the other comment or pushback will be, well, they made a business decision, and they did. So WestJet, for instance, I like using this example because I think it's on point. So the WestJet flight to Dublin, people say, well, WestJet made a business the business decision to go to Halifax. You're absolutely right, but that business decision was encouraged by the Robert Stanfield International Airport Authority. So the WestJet, WestJet numbers uh, year over year were growing. So they didn't leave because no one was taking the flight. They left for greener pastures in Nova Scotia. It's as simple as that. And those numbers with growth year over year, I got them directly from WestJet. This is not anecdotal. This is not making stuff up. WestJet gave me the numbers. The ticket sales grew. So they simply left because there was more profit to fly out of Halifax because they were made a sweeter deal. So what the investment would have to be, I don't know. But there's, you know, we have to do a bunch of things concurrently. It's not just access its amenities when you get here whether that be a rental car or anything else and our tourism offerings have to be pro and world class and we have to clean the place up and all of that kind of stuff all has to happen hand in glove it's not just one thing it's all these things that we can work on you know because walking and chewing gum is something well established amongst the professional community out there and maybe not necessarily all the time government but anyway i think it's an important topic i get scoffed at all the time but so be it i think it's good well,
3: the fallback to the, you know, the, uh, you know, I'll call it an excuse, but call it whatever you like. The fallback to where well, they made a business decision is, mm-hmm. you know, business decisions are made every day, and business decisions are influenced by many things, but they're mostly influenced by money. And you know, mm-hmm. if the, the if the provincial government and the federal government and all the levels of government that have the, the fingers on the public purse strings and have the, you know, the resources to have an impact in this regard. You know, make that money conversation different around those business decisions, then the a chance that those business decisions might be made in a different way. So, you know, I think that, you know, we have a, a first class. Uh, destination in all in all regards you know it's a beautiful place to live it's a beautiful place to visit it's a safe it's you know it's clean it's healthy it's all of the things that the world is looking for and for us to be kind of relegated because we just will not throw the doors open in a stronger you know more profound and more dedicated way is we're doing this service to the problem. and i think that we really need to get our heads around you know, this is not going to happen on its own. It's not going to happen because we're nice or because we're friendly or because we got icebergs. It needs a, a nudge, and it needs an economic financial nudge from the people who got the money, and that's the government, at all levels of government. And I think that that seriously needs to be looked at for, you know, for the future of the whole whole province. Appreciate
1: the time this morning, Todd. Thanks a lot. Thanks, Patty.
3: Take care. Bye-bye. Cheers.
1: All right, before we get to the break, let's go to two. Glenn, you're on the air.
4: Good morning, uh, Patty. Morning to you uh no doubt about it we're living in one of the best places in the world uh newfoundland labrador i listened to your previous caller there and uh, certainly enjoy listening to your shows thank you and just you're welcome so much and this morning i took it on upon myself to call on behalf of a uh, senior citizen and uh, that person is uh lived in an apartment and uh Moved to another apartment uh, that had uh, better uh, conditions in relation to his accessibilities, his disabilities, and so forth. And through the process of all of this, he actually, uh, uh, his internet and cable TV company, actually, uh, he got a problem. Uh, He can't get a hookup. And this has been going on now for three weeks. And before they do the up, we're talking another two weeks. Now, to some people, this may seem to be a small issue in the scheme of things. But to him, he's actually walking the floor, not knowing what to do. He listens to the open line shows. He uh, pays his bills through the uh, Internet services. And he actually talked to a number of uh, people with the uh, cable TV internet company that I'm talking about. And he's been cut off. He's been told that he would have internet and cable TV hooked up within a certain time. That didn't happen. This happened on two occasions. And I've been on the bar now trying to help out this senior citizen. And a matter of fact, I don't mind saying he's 82 years old. He served our country, and he paved the way to give us a better life and living in the democracy and freedoms that we got. And this company, in my opinion, is very disrespectful, and I've had discussions with them, and I kept my cool, and I tried to outline the necessity that was required for this senior citizen and they showed no empathy, no support, and, in my opinion, is very, very poor customer service.
1: It sounds like it. it. Where is this person living?
4: This person is living in the town of Bonavista.
1: I wonder if it's a, you know, would it be a different set of circumstances if he was living, in, say, for instance, Corner Brook, which would be hub, or Grand Falls Windsor, But Bonavista is not exactly too far off the beaten track. I was just curious uh, about what part of the province they were living in. You know...
4: Yes, uh, and if I may, I didn't mean to cut you off, but if I may, there are two technicians that I know of uh, with this company living in the area of Bonavista. And that really makes me a little bit frustrated, and I've outlined the actual issues related to this person and being a senior citizen and being uh, really needing supports every which way that we can give them. And uh, they don't even listen to uh, the points that are being made, and they don't try to resolve the issue. And we're talking like five, six weeks, and a person actually loyal to this company paid his bills and done a transfer and can't get a hookup in a town the size of Bonavista, There's definitely something wrong with this issue, uh, Patty.
1: I don't dispute it. You know, uh, there's actually schools of thought out there, and that's why the country and different provinces expanding access to high-speed broadband, because people are talking about it as being a right, not a luxury anymore, because so much of our life revolves around the fact that we're interconnected. So six weeks is a long time to go without what would be important for him, not only for his own amusement but he pays his bills that way. So there's something even just as simple as that that might be just an unfortunate, unnecessary imposition on uh, this gentleman. I appreciate the time this morning, Glenn. Hopefully he gets this figured out ASAP uh, because that's a long time to go.
5: Yeah, and I'd like
4: for anyone who uh, in the area who can help out and provide some information or give us a way to find out how we can get this issue dealt with. I didn't mention the company. I'd love to mention the company because... Uh, In my opinion, a company of that size, who's very, uh, you know, I mean, they got all cops here in Bonavista, and a lot of people are actually uh, going through this company. And if they don't treat our seniors any better than that, I mean, shame on them. Isn't there only one game in town in Bonavista? Pardon me? Isn't there only one uh,
1: service available, one company available?
4: No, there are other services, but we okay. got to go through another service now. it's going to take that much longer, possibly, to get a hookup. And why should he have to do that? Uh, you know, I mean, uh, he's, he's loyal to this company, yes, sir. And this company should show at least with the, with the uh, situation that he's in, and it's different than most. It's very unique. It's a different situation. They should show some respect and get a technician there and get this service hooked up. You know.
1: I appreciate the time, Glenn. Thanks for letting us know.
4: And thank you very much, Betty. I appreciate your time.
1: Anytime. All the best. Bye-bye. Okay, bye-bye. All right, uh, let's go ahead and take a break. When we come back, we talked about the funding announcement for the Downtown Safety Coalition, the potential for a ride share such as Uber to come to town, and other things going on in the city of St. John's. Mayor Danny Breen is there. We're also going to talk about the price of lobster and whatever you want to talk about. Don't go away
0: weekday mornings from 5 30 to 9 jumpstart your day with jerry lynn Mackey and ben murphy newsmakers traffic weather and more during your vocm
1: morning show welcome back to the show let's go to line number one seeking more to his worship the mayor of the city of st john's that's danny breen mayor breen you're on the air Good morning patty welcome to the program Thank you. Before we get into the Downtown Safety Coalition, of which the city is a member, let's talk about transportation and the ride share app. You know, I know the city says you're doing your due diligence, trying to make sure all the regulations and legislation and enforcement is in place before we entertain welcoming a ride app like Uber to town. My question would be, if it's been in Canada, in Edmonton since 2016, is there not a best practices, copy and paste way to uh, deal with this versus the time, the energy, human resources to try to replicate what's already in place elsewhere?
6: Well, we've had a look around at the different jurisdictions. Uh, they all have different legislation. So, for our legislation, part of the responsibility for uh, transportation uh, and taxis lies with the city and part lies with the province. So, uh, it's a bit of a different situation here. And on top of that, then we have the regional aspect because we have uh, taxi bylaws and regulations in St. John's, uh, but there's uh, different jurisdictions such as Mount Pearl, Paradise, CBS. So uh, that uh, adds a, a level of complexity to it. So what we did as we dug deeper into it is we said, okay, we're going to go ahead, given with some of the changes that the province has made um, uh, to, uh, to to encourage large companies to, uh, to work here. Uh, that we'll go ahead, modify our laws, which we're doing now, uh, so we'll have them ready for the time that uh, that share companies uh, look, to, uh, look to setting up here. Uh,
1: so <clears throat> is, does that mean that we need regional cooperation from whether it be Paradise, CBS, Mount Pearl, or otherwise? Because I can land in Halifax and get an Uber to Dartmouth. I can land in Edmonton and go to Stony Plain. So is it a matter of cooperation, or is there something that they need to do insofar as the heavy lifting goes?
6: Well, I think it's a matter of uh, just cooperation and making sure that we all have our bylaws our in sync. You know, if you get in a taxi on uh, New Gower Street and you're going to Paradise, then the regulations of that taxi only carry you to uh, to the border of St. John's. Uh, so there's uh, uh, the rules then would apply. So we've been working with the province and, and uh, I met with Uber last week in, uh, in Toronto when I was there. And uh, so they're pleased with where we are right now. Uh, they're working with the province on a couple of other issues that need to be straightened away, but I think we'll be ready to uh, uh, to be able to accommodate them should they uh, decide to uh, to operate it. So, is that something they say they want to do? There's something that they're looking at. They haven't uh, they haven't said yes. We're going to be to be there. There's not only Uber. There's other uh, companies who have also expressed an interest. Um, uh, some more serious interest than others and uh, that's why we wanted to make sure that we were in a position to 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 be able to uh, get let them set up as soon as they make that decision.
1: Yeah, there's some population density concerns that all these ride-sharing apps consider for the obvious reasons. Yeah, uh, the other thing, Patty, you know, if
6: you look at the economics that the taxi drivers are facing, the economics are not that different uh, for for the ride-share company. So you, uh, the insurance issue is being is being addressed, but I mean the cost of fuel, the cost of repairs. Uh, shortage of, of, of labor there's a lot of issues around
1: it, yeah I guess the only difference therein would be that an uber driver has his or her own flexibility I don't exactly. have to take uh, Gulliver's cab and put in a 12-hour shift I might right. be working as uh, someone in the newsroom <laughs> at the and doing it a couple of hours on the weekend so that that's the only thing where you know makes yeah. it a little bit easier to navigate those overhead or input costs okay right. fair enough um, I was going to ask something else on the ride share but let's move on. The downtown safety coalition, I mean everybody knows and understands it's a problem. The violence downtown is a problem and you have to believe that it's underreported, which I think stands to reason because we've heard stories where people say I saw it, I called the police and nothing happened. Consequently when that becomes a story that emanates throughout the downtown core, musicians and patrons and bar keeps and what have you, then they just shrug their shoulders and don't do much about it. So where do you think the priority is here? And I know the priority not to mean that, you know, stopping the violence or curbing it as best we can, but if we're just, if the cops don't embed themselves here with better lighting and more security, which, you know, who wants to be security with some of these potentially violent uh, actions that might take place, or ID or lighting or whatever, without the police, do you think
6: that this will all make an appreciable difference to curb the violence? Well, let's take a couple of these things separately. So the first, you're exactly right. The reporting of crimes is, is a problem. Um, and it's a problem when we started looking at the statistics because the statistics weren't bearing out what we uh, had heard anecdotally and and, and from people. So uh, w- that's why we're um, we're putting together the program, um, uh, see it and say it uh, type the program. We're we're going to be encouraging people to uh, to relate their stories so we can have some good information to uh, to base those decisions on. Uh, the lighting issue is one that we've addressed for about i think about halfway through upgrading the lighting in the downtown area, so uh lighting's a big part of the safety uh component of this, and as well uh the cleaning uh just to mention that that we've uh partnered now with the George Street Association to uh Uh, to improve the cleaning in the downtown area. And one thing, Patty, that to me is important is uh, regularly washing down the streets and and cleaning them up and getting the, the dirt out of there before the next day.
1: Yeah, because the TV inside a uh, a glossy ad, whether it be a billboard or a television commercial, it doesn't really look like that in daylight when you walk
6: down George Street and see with your own two eyes. So, exactly. Was, so we've, we've had to put more effort into that. We have a, about a $200,000 contract that we have in the downtown uh, with downtown St. John's, and now we've uh, we've increased that uh, working with George Street Association.
1: People also talk about CCTV cameras, and they've been in the area. I understand the thought behind that, but basically, someone who's whether it be to get their fix or they're just have a criminal mind, the CCTV camera basically just helps us uh, identify you after you've committed a crime. I don't know what kind of deterrent it puts in place. I think it's a different conversation regarding speed cameras, for instance, because. You know, you're hopefully not whacked out of your mind when you're going to make a decision as to how uh, hard you press the loud pedal in your car. But what role do you think CCTV plays?
6: Well, that's one of the issues as, uh, that we had a discussion on, and that is going to be discussed further as we move forward. I think the one thing to remember about this coalition I heard chat on earlier uh, while I was waiting here, have, was at some of those meetings was, as well uh, with us. Is, is that w- this is a beginning. It's, it's not the end of the program. So we're going to be continuing to work together. Uh, we've got everybody we need now around the table and uh, having a good discussion, and you're going to see more things come out of this in the future.
1: Uh, last one before I let you go. Has there been any further development of next steps in the economic cooperation between ourselves, Paradise, and CBS?
6: Yeah, so we're now putting together uh, the uh, um, the terms of reference, and we're going to be looking at the, um, at the at the leadership in in that organization. So that's work that's with our staff now, and uh, we hope to have that put together uh, hopefully by the uh, end of the summer and uh, be able to uh, hit the ground running there in the fall. I look forward to
1: additional information. Appreciate the time this morning, Mayor Breen. Okay, thank you, Patty. Have a great weekend. The very same to you. Take care. Bye bye. bye. Yeah, lots to that, and of course, look, the focus will be on George Street between Adelaide and George for the obvious reasons, because of the Downtown Safety Coalition, but whether it be Mark Wilson or Steve, whether, you know, the Livingstone Street area, or anywhere else in the province where you think that this needs a heightened focus and awareness, we're happy to take it on. Let's try to get back on track for the breaks. Appreciate the patience. Ryan, you're there to talk about lobster. Don't go away. Welcome back. Let's go to line number four. Let's more to the ED, the Executive Director at CNL, Ryan Clary.
7: Ryan, you're on the air. Good morning, Paddy, you and your listeners. Thanks for taking the calls. Happy to do it. Patty, I'm calling in about the fishery as usual, but I want to start off a little differently today, and that's with a good news story. I don't do that enough. So I'm not sure if you've seen, but I'm, I'm sure you have. Uh, Rick Crane, he was on the, the CBC. Um, the CBC did a story on on him this week. He's a lobster fisherman on the west coast of Newfoundland. He's pretty well known from Coldwater Cowboys, the Discovery Channel show. So, like I said, there was a story about Rick and the CBC this week, and the story was about how we spent $500,000, and what he did, Patty, was build a holding tank that can hold lobster.
1: Yeah, and I know it. I talked about it. He's out in Cox's Coast Cove, thing. so he's yep. able to hold some uh, 48,000 pounds of lobster. He's got a real world-class world uh, water recycling uh, pump component to this, not only for fresh water but to remove lobster waste. My comment on it was... Good on Rick to be more in control of his own fate. So he can time the sale of his lapses, which he can keep in that tank for upwards of six months with the circulation that he has in place. So he'll be able to sell to whoever he wants to at the best price available on his schedule. Consequently, he'll drive up his revenues. I don't know what his business model is for cost recovery of a half million
7: dollars, but what
1: I said is bravo, Rick.
8: Buddy, that's exactly what I was going to say, Patty.
7: I applaud Rick Crane for his ingenuity, for his hard work. He's a trailblazer. We need more of that in the fishery. But now I have a broader point and a concern, Patty, and it's about holding tanks and about how our our lobster fishermen are not getting a fair market share. I spoke to you about this before. The price of lobster in this province is based on a formula. As you know, that formula was brought in 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 2011, and, and I want to keep this as simple as possible. I don't want to lose the audience, Patty. The lobster pricing formula pays fishermen as if their catch is being sold pretty close to when it's landed. Within a week or two, um, at, 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 within a week or two, going into the market. In fact, the lobster may be kept in holding tanks and sold later for much higher prices. Processing companies in Newfoundland and Labrador, and throughout the Maritimes patty, again we spoke about this before. They've spent a fortune in recent years on huge holding tanks on a much bigger scale than Rick Crane's holding tank. And what they're doing is they're selling lobster throughout the year when the price is the highest. Again, that's great for them. That's smart. The problem, Patty, is that our lobster fishermen, because that lobster pricing formula is based on sales numbers as if the lobster is going into market now, they're not getting a fair market share. That's my broader point. The price-setting panel raised concerns this year, in 2023, and last year that lobster harvesters may, may not be getting a fair market return and that the formula may be obsolete because these processing companies have these holding tanks, and they can dictate, they can decide when the lobster goes into the market. So the fishermen are paid now based on a formula as if the lobster is being sold now, but that may not be the case. It's sold later. I, again, with Rick Crane's uh, 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 scenario, what he's done, it's sold later when the price is higher because we have a formula. Our fishermen can tap into that higher price. You understand that.
1: Well, they're doing exactly what Rick Crane is doing, except at a larger exactly. scale. Simple as that.
7: Yes, exactly. Rick Crane is following that.
1: Yeah, so the the formula is it's not exactly really complicated, but there's some moving parts to it. So when the price, the Canadian price is above eight bucks, it changes from eighty percent of the market share to seventy. I think that's how that works in that front. Then there's the sliding scale of the difference between uh, the price per pound for harvesters versus the processors. There's also a fairly complicated issue regarding plugging in an exchange rate, which does indeed have an impact uh, at the end of the day when the processors sell. So if you look at lobster prices twenty twenty three on the on the union's website, you'll get a better sense of the sliding scale here. But there's no disputing. The processors, with the capacity and the capital to do what they've done with these massive holding tanks, they maximize their profits, exactly what Rick is doing. So if the price-setting panel (laughs) has a problem with it, then you know there's a massive problem with it. Where the solution lies, I don't know. Is the suggestion that I sell you my lobster and I get an additional uh, percentage portion of the eventual sale price, so receipts be exchanged and accounting uh, issues uh, take over versus what is simply price per pound paid at the dock or dwarf?
7: Well, first things first, Patty, we've got to acknowledge that there's a problem. So I wrote a letter earlier this spring to Bernard Davis. He's the minister minister responsible for labor. And I asked him, based on the panel recommendation, uh, to review the lobster formula. And he got back to me to say that he would take that uh, under advisement. Now, that's not good enough. This should have been looked into last year when the panel first pointed it out. But from my perspective, too, Patty, this is bigger than lobster. We've seen what happened with the final offer selection this year with this almost seven-week tie-up. There must be a broader review of the entire fish price-setting system in this province, not just lobster but crab and everything else. The pricing formulas, uh, the the final offer selection system – has been made absolutely evident this year it does not work it doesn't work in terms of getting fisheries going and getting a fair market value a fair market share for our inshore fleet so again i'm calling on the premier to call a broader review uh, and i would go so far as an independent inquiry into all aspects of the fish price setting system in this province
1: I don't know how different it would be from other business that you know there's a certain time frame when there will be a premium price charge. And I don't know if I can come up with a, an easy example here. Okay. I I buy a load of fireworks after New Year's Eve and I hoard them till the 1st of July because I know there'll be a demand for, and consequently people will pay more for in the simple of supply and demand. So, why would it be any difference inside the fishery? Those at the uh, end of the stick, in this case the processors, they'll do what they can do to make more money. It's not necessarily illegal or unfair, or pardon me, it's not illegal. I don't think it's unethical, but it might be unfair. So how is the fishery any different than any other business where I know when the premium season is coming for selling whatever product it is, and if I get my chance to get my hands on it and i have the capacity to sit on it, then I'll sell it when I can, just like they do in the oil business. I mean, we got tankers floating all over the world waiting for a couple of buck uptick in the price of a barrel of oil. Why? Because they make more money.
7: The system is not fair, Patty. It's a structured system based on earner-barry numbers, as if the lobster is going into the market soon after it's caught. That's not the case. The lobster formula is obsolete. It no longer works. Our inshore harvesters, depend uh, 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 they deserve a fair market share. And uh, from my perspective, uh, the only thing that would deliver a fair market share is either uh, a receipts-based pricing system based on sales receipts or... An electronic auction open to buyers anywhere in the world. It's got to be one or the other. But that's the only way to ensure ensure that it's fair.
1: Appreciate the time, Ryan. After the break, I go. Have a nice weekend. You too, Petty. Take care. Bye-bye. All right, there we go. Time for the news. When we come back, there's someone who wants to talk about Mr. Pretty's trip, Greg Pretty. He was, of course, the president of the FFAW. Doris is talking about a stroke survivor who cannot find a doctor. And then parking at one of the provinces' hospitals. It's a problem. Don't go away.
0: Your VOCM Mornings with Jerry Lynn Mackey and Ben Murphy, 5.30 to 9 a.m. weekdays on your VOCM.
1: Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number one, I think. Is it David? Uh, yeah, okay, let's go to line one. Good morning, Doris. You're on the air. Hi. How Hi are you? I'm okay, thank you. How about you?
9: Not too bad. I've been hesitating on doing this for the past five months, but I finally got the nerve up to do it. I'm calling about our health care system, Right now in the and Labrador, that nobody seems to—I uh, don't know—care anymore what happens to people. My husband had a stroke five months ago. Okay, we spent two months in Saint John's at the Miller Center. Mm-hmm. We are in—we live in Clareville now. There, I know there's doctors shortages everywhere, and I know some people have in, have no doctors in their towns. There is doctors in in this town. I have went to every doctor office in this town and I asked if he could get on a wait list to see a doctor and they said we do not take wait lists, we are not taking wait lists and I said so nobody will take anybody I said he had a stroke, he needs to see a doctor, nobody is taking wait lists? No, can't take a wait list, okay fine I went to the place where the collaborative care unit is supposed to be starting and they said to me this is going to be months before this is set off, they have to hire the nurses. They have to, uh, you know, hire people here. This will not happen. I don't understand. Oh, and the 833 number. I call that every week since he's had a stroke and ask them to move him up on the list. And they said, yes, we can put in a request to move him up on the list, but we cannot tell... what what his health condition is. We don't even say his health condition has changed. I said, but he had a stroke. He needs to see a doctor. It has been five months since he's seen anybody. Oh, no, that's wrong. We were paid to go to a nurse practitioner, get some blood work done, and to get a blood uh, monitor put on him because his blood pressure has been dropping and his weight has dropped since his stroke. And they changed his medication in St. John's, the neurologist, when he was there. And he is now has not seen anybody. The blood pressure monitor was ordered in March. We're going to get it now on the 24th of June, which that's a wonderful thing that takes that long to get that. And uh, we called his neurologist. His neurologist uh, said, uh, his secretary said, well, maybe he needs to see a cardiologist. I said, well, first you need to, to see a doctor to refer him to a cardiologist, which he doesn't have. And I said, second of all, the doctor asked him to return in three months. It is now five months, and we have not got a request for him to come in to see the neurologist again. And she said, well, maybe the fall before we get him in."
1: Doris, you say you want him to be moved up on the wait list. What wait list is he on? So did you register your husband on Patient Connect NL to try to get into a collaborative care clinic?
9: <laughs> oh, yeah. yes, I did. And I called them every every week. And I asked them to move them up. And he she said, here's what they told me, everyone that I talked to. Yes, we can put at request for him to be moved up on the wait list. But we cannot tell what health condition has changed we only can say his health condition has changed but we can't tell them any information about his health like that he had a stroke so I said your health condition can change if your blood pressure went up what about a stroke where do you land in this they cannot give me any answers I don't know what that AL33 number is for is to do that But they're not serving any purpose for me, because five months later, I'm sitting there with a husband that has not seen a doctor, and and I went to everywhere in this town. And they just say, not taking any new patients, sorry.
1: Not to nitpick, uh, is the number you're referring to 811 or 833? Uh, Because I don't know what it is.
9: 833 number.
1: Okay. So, look, I was on Patient Connect myself as a relatively healthy person, knock on wood, and I was on it for 11 months before I got a call to be uh, placed at the Mundy Pond Clinic. And I think that's why the various doctors in their own private clinics are not taking wait lists themselves because they've got another entity managing the wait list, which is obviously Patient Connect. So, you know, when it comes to... The repeat appointment with the neurologist here in the city, if you were told to come back in three months, are they telling you there's a reason why all of a sudden three months is not a necessary follow-up time?
9: Because they're backed up. Simple as that. That's the words. Simple as that. They are backed up. So I said, the doctor had said for him to come back in three weeks. This is five months later. And you're saying to me, oh, I don't know. We may get him in by the fall. And uh, I just I, here's when I, I, I listen. My husband was very, very lucky. He pulled off the side of the road on the, uh, uh, on Veterans Memorial Highway, and and a stroke happened just like that. I called an ambulance. We got him in Saint John's within two hours. He had blood clots. Blood clots. Thing done, and he was very, very lucky because it it, within four hours they is so much damage done that they sometimes irreversible. So he is walking and he is, well, his speech is a little bit off right yet, but he has been doing very well, but he's had got an issue with his uh, uh, lower blood pressure because he's lost weight, and they changed medications on him. In January months, his blood pressure medications and things like that, and we don't know if that... So I'm, uh, the, the basic thing that I am complaining about is that there was millions of dollars by the federal government, given to help out with the healthcare system, but I don't see anything improving. Maybe everybody else has seen it, but I don't see it. And we, as senior citizens, are paying for a, a, a nurse practitioner to be able to order blood work for him or whatever we have to do. That's a two-tier system. That is not what we, paid, that we joined up for here in Canada. We should have a right, especially if you have a health condition that I think, I don't know what, where you put stroke on the list of important things, but what's the point of it? They won't even tell the people, the doctors that they're referring him to, they're not telling him what his health condition is.
1: Well, I guess without an examination, it's hard to say what his condition is. Whether it's deteriorated or improved or status quo, I don't know. But I, I get your concern. So have, I know that 811 is less than perfect. But have you also tried that number to see if there's any additional information or advice that you can get on that front? Because... I don't even know what 833 necessarily does. And I know 811, it might be as simple as, well, if you're on the wait list, you simply have to wait for the wait list to see your number come up and consequently get a doctor in Clarenville at a collaborative care clinic or whatever the case may be. But I'm not sure where to point you. Like when the neurologist says, I need to see you in three months, it's wonder how that's a moving target as opposed to a legitimate time frame that they should adhere to based on their own professionalism. That one's kind of confusing
9: me. Okay. That's what I'm saying. So I'm not getting answers from anybody. Eight three, three, the neurologist, we have called us office. and 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 that's what they said. They said we are backed up. And I said, but he was supposed to see you in three months. Like, I'm just saying that doesn't seem like the health care system is, uh, I don't know. I know this wait list is for everything. I know people have to wait for to get surgeries done. I know that they have to wait for referrals and things like that. I understand that. But, I mean, he has, I, I'm not even talking about my health. I'm talking about the fact that he had a stroke and he has had nobody. Nobody to look at him, or and I I'm, I'm not the only I can't be the only one in Newfoundland and Labrador that's in this situation. I just wonder why it is like it is. I'm wondering if you could check out the 833 number and see what they do because they do absolutely nothing, and I don't know why our government is paying for people to answer a phone to say we will move them up on the health on the thing, and you hear nothing from nobody. That is uh, five months later. And by the way, in August when we came here, we did call that 833 to put ourselves on the list, which will be a year now in August. And we haven't heard anything on that. And at that time, we didn't have any major health care problems.
1: Yeah, I only knew of 833. as something to do with COVID, maybe vaccine appointments or what have you. But I I wish you luck, and hopefully... You get seen sooner than later, and the summary is, and this is not to gloss over it, is there's so much demand that the system simply cannot keep up, and that's on every single front. Specialist appointments, joint replacements, access to a family doctor, the numbers of nurses. I mean, the the layers of why the system is as slow or as broken as it is are varied, and the the way out of this is nightmarish. Uh, I appreciate your time. I wish you and your husband well. Say hello for me, will you, Doris?
9: Yeah, uh, thank you. I just want—I'm uh, sure there's other people with concerns like us, and I don't know why the government is saying they're doing things to help this, and we—we we don't see any help coming our way. That's all I can say. Thank you very much. I wish you luck, Doris. Take good care. All right, bye-bye.
1: All right, uh, let's take a break. Appreciate the patience of those in the queue. We'll get to you right after this. Don't go away. Welcome back to the program. Oh, Perry Chafe, he's a writer, a television writer. He's a co-founder and partner on Take the Shot Productions, the production company behind uh, Republic of Doyle, of course, TV series for which he was the head writer. He was one of the writers and executive producers on Frontier, writer and a producer on Caught, which was uh, taking taking a series based on Lisa Moore's award-winning novel. Also a writer and show runner, I believe, on Son of Critch, which has got off to a fantastic start. And now, add to it, novelist. His debut novel is called Closer by Sea, and for the purpose of this conversation, Petty Harbour's favorite son. Joining us on line number three, that's Perry Chafe. Good morning, Perry. you on the air. <laughs>
8: Thanks, Patty. That's quite an honor. I don't know. Uh, I have to share that one with Alan Doyle.
1: <laughs> I'm willing to take my knocks from Doyle. Don't
8: you worry
10: about that.
1: <laughs> Before we get into the novel, you know, I'm a reader and a talker. I have tried writing, and it really is quite difficult, but I think my uh, first question will be, You know, there's got to be a difference, I think, between writing for episodic television and writing a song like you do with your partner, Maureen Ennis, and some of them are absolutely lovely. What does character development look like inside the world of a novel where you give it a chance to breathe? You have to set the stage very quickly, but the character gets a chance to grow inside a couple hundred pages versus 45 minutes worth of Doyle.
8: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, and that's one of the reasons why I wanted to sort of uh, write a book uh, rather than sort of do the uh, the screenplay or or even uh, you know uh, go right to a series with it, you just have more time for development. You know, you have two hundred and seventy pages, as you mentioned, as opposed to sixty if you're doing an hour or, or even thirty if you're doing a half hour. So it just gives you more time to develop a world in which you can set characters and really set it out. And do it justice, especially because this was such a story that's near and dear to me about this place, which, you know, we all love, and I wanted to do it justice. So uh, doing it so uh, within a novel just let me uh, do that, and I'm so happy that people have been embracing it.
1: It's a great read. I uh, Your publisher was kind enough to send me an advanced copy, which I read on a couple of flights there a couple of months ago. Matter of fact, I've been watching Doyle again on Crave. Last night's episode, Leslie Bennett got fired because Jake stole her data access thing to uh, deal with a prisoner transfer. Good episode. Anyway, let's keep yeah. going. Inside of this, you know, before we set the stage with some of the storyline and what have you, what I my takeaway, and I think something along the lines that I wrote you after I finished reading your book, is that... You know, when you talk about small, rural, rural sleepy Newfoundland and Labrador, we kind of think that maybe life is just much easier, much different than big city cosmopolitan. But your novel very clearly paints the picture of personal bonds and emotional turmoil and complexity of relationships is just as much a part of rural Newfoundland that it is cosmopolitan Manhattan. And I use Manhattan because one of the characters is from New York. So that really does speak to life might be different, but it's deliciously similar no matter where you live.
8: Oh, absolutely. And again, thank you for reading it and for the kind words. Um, and I think when things happen, especially in a small community, like I grew up in Petty Harbor and, and Newfoundland in general, just so many small communities and just being, you know, population-wise a small place, I think it's amplified when things happen. You know, everybody knows your business, yes, but everybody also, there's a bond between people and families. It's just such a community in, 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 every, in every way, you know? And so when tragedy happens, um, I, I think it's just amplified uh, more so, you know, and in, in the book, there is a character from New York City, you know, and, and uh, a girl named uh, Emily. And, you know, where she's from, um, there's more people in a single building that is in, you know, on, on the island that she's visiting. So I, I thought it was sort of important to use that Uh, you know, point of view from somebody coming in from away, just to see how small this place is and how important community can be, especially in times of tragedy.
1: This, uh, the storyline begins with a touchstone that many people in the province, unfortunately, can relate to and communities can relate to. So in 1991, a young man who's the key character in the book, Pierce, His father was lost at sea. He drowned, and consequently, Pierce has spent not only the next number of years trying to grapple with the loss of his dad, but even trying to save money to put his fishing boat back on the water. But part of the next step in the story is the relationship with these buddies and the fact that a girl that he's had an interaction with that really struck him and stuck with him. Young Anna has gone missing. Anna Tessier, I believe is her name. So walk us through just Pierce's journey, period, with the relationship with these buddies and what the Anna component means.
8: Well, yeah, so it's the stories, you know, about a, a coming of age, mystery, suspense, I guess thriller, you know, about, about a young boy named Pierce, uh, who lives on this small isolated island off the northeast coast of, of Newfoundland in 91, which was a year before the collapse of the cod fishery, which was such a pivotal time in our history, as you just referenced. And, and he's coming to terms with the loss of his father, a fisherman, uh, who was lost at sea some three years earlier. Uh, which unfortunately is such, you know, it's become a common story uh, when you work near and on the water. Uh, but then a young girl who, who he profe- uh, uh, befriends named Anna, she she too goes missing and he just, just can't deal with another loss. So he decides to go find her, you know, and, and, and he and his friends uh, go on this journey where they encounter, you know, sea creatures and uh, fierce storms and, and glacial giants that we call icebergs. In uh, sort of a almost a stand by me uh, uh, feeling to to the story, but um, I, I and again I, I said it in 1991, which was a year before the moratorium. Such again a pivotal time in our history, where you can feel that there was something going on. You know there there was a loss. You could feel that uh, there's something around the corner that doesn't that wasn't right. And of course, we would find out just a year later that that something was the Cod moratorium and, and an end of a way of life that. Uh, people, uh, you know, for generations worked in the fishery and there was just such an ending to that. It was supposed to be for a couple of years and now here we are going on 30 plus years, you know, last year being the 30th uh, anniversary of that historic time in our history.
1: And, you know, I suppose some of this is a slice of your own life and experiences maybe you and Doyle would have had, where here he is, he's lost his dad, and they would keep an eye on the horizon for the boys coming back in with their catch. You could always tell how much they had on based on how low the gunnels were to the surface of the water. Then the competition to get to see who would be able to take the cod tongues. How much is that directly reflective of your youth?
8: Oh, yeah, there's a good bit of me and and my buddies like Alan in that book. Yeah, and like Pierce, my dad was a fisherman. My mother was a fish plant worker, my brothers uh, all worked in and around the water as well. And uh, I, myself and my younger brother and Alan would spend, you know, all summer on the wharf with buckets and knives, uh, cutting out cod tongues to sell to make uh, a few dollars. So, there, uh, you know, in, again, in and around, we, you know, Petty Harbour was a small place, but yet we had three active fish plants for a community of a thousand, which. Which, so you can just, it was just a beehive of activity in and around the water all summer long. So, yeah, absolutely. There's, there's a good bit of uh, me in this book and my experiences, even dealing with the marine biology, which you, uh, uh, when you reached out, we spoke about. And uh, that from my time working at the New Museum and at the rooms, uh, dealing with the marine biology and our exhibitions there. Uh, from an educational standpoint i was able to sort of incorporate that Uh, having a history degree it was really important for me to tell our our story you know uh in the best way i i I could so i do talk about the cod moratorium and themes like resettlement and fairy lore and uh, cottage hospitals tragedy at sea so uh, there's a uh, there's a lot of me and i like to think a lot of the province in this book and uh, that's why i'm so proud that it's being so uh, uh well received right now
1: and beyond coming of age let's get to the whodunit component of the of the story because it does play obviously a key role so without giving too much away because we want people to buy
8: the book get to the whodunit <laughs> yeah so it, it, it's really uh you know this is about not to give away the ending or anything but it, it's a journey uh for pierce to find uh, this girl uh named anna and um and in many ways, it's sort of a redemption story for him. Uh, he, you know, feeling, uh, you know, that he had, he was somehow responsible for his father disappearing, which he wasn't. But being nine when he did, he just he sort of, that's part of having a boat in the backyard. It's really, that's his conscience and his guilt that he's feeling. So this quest to find this young girl is all about sort of uh, a redemption and just refusing to lose another uh, person that's near and dear to him.
1: Uh, last one before I let you go, is I know I would would imagine inside the world of a novelist, the need to want to paint a picture, so it's not just telling a story, you want to put people immersed, whether it be in the kitchen, or in the backyard, or in a vicar's home, or whatever the case may be, how painstaking was it? Because for me, it was literally like the book was illustrated, and of course it's not, there's no pictures in it, there's no illustrations in it, but it was a very vibrant account of what the place looked like, and felt like, and the impact it had on the
8: story, how difficult is that? Oh my goodness. Thank you. That's very kind of you. It That was, that was really challenging. Uh, in, in my other world, in the script writing world, you know, you put a fish plant down a, as your setting, you know, and uh, somebody goes out from locations and we find a fish plant and that's all, you know, and you can see it on the screen. And, but in, in this, in in the world of the novel, it's just so descriptive, you know, I'm I, dialogue is my strength heading into this, but I really had to sort of wrap my hand around the script of nature and, 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 that was really tough because, you know, my editor, you say, well, that's a fish plant. So what does it smell like? What does it look like? Who's there? You know, and just that amount of detail that goes in to make it sort of jump off the page was, that was challenging. So, uh, especially when a lot of people, you know, not from here who are going to read the book, uh, would really get a sense of what this place is about. And I'm just, again, so thrilled last week and this week, again, I just found out it's on the, uh, Trying to start a bestseller list, and as well as the Globe and Mail, so other people from here are reading our story. And again, I, I couldn't be uh, prouder because it really is a homage to to a people and a place that you know survived something like uh, the moratorium, and, and sort of from those you know the ashes made something uh, from that. And, and it, it's just it's something to you know to reflect back on and, and be very proud of. Congratulations.
1: And people can pick up a copy of Closer by C wherever they buy books. And of course, you can go simply to the publisher as well as Scribner Canada. Uh, congratulations. It's a real page turner. People ask me every now and then to do these types of, of uh, bits or interviews, but I can only mm-hmm. do it if I read the book. And unfortunately for me, I read a lot of news. So this was a great release and relief for me to be able to thumb through the pages of your debut novel. Bravo.
8: Uh, thanks so much, Betty. I, I really appreciate the support. Thank you so much.
1: Take good care. Good luck.
8: Thank you. Bye. Sure.
1: Bye. Perry Chafe, debut novel in bookstores everywhere, bestseller. How about that? All right, let's take a break. When we come back, we're talking the taxi industry, and then of course, what we'll it's like to park at St. Clair's, and whatever you want to talk about. Don't go away.
0: Every Saturday is perfect for a night at the cabin, the cabin party with Brian O'Connell. Saturday night, starting at 7 p.m. on V O C M. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number two. Ryan, you're on the air. Hey,
11: good morning, Patty. How you doing? Doing okay. How about you? i'm not doing too bad patty i'm uh, i was just uh, i'm just to now waiting to pick up waiting to pick up a set of gear but i think uh, i think calling in and making the public aware of some of our situations is more important in the short term and picking up this gear actually i just listened to a very interesting call from another brother from pity harbor perry chase who i am uh, who i am super super proud of for telling our heritage and i grew up smelling those same smells and around a fish plant and around in, in boats with all my uncles uh, tom Bass and uh, the best brothers ever have brothers, people like the Hearns, but uh, I guess what a lot of people don't know is we, we spend a lot of time with our heritage, looking back at our heritage, writing books, but I'm more concerned about our future right now than I am about our heritage, because we're gonna be writing another book in 10 years, because from an outsider looking in, we still look like we have a thriving fishery, but an actual reality, because government applaud rules and uh, that divide the industry, divide sectors, Right now, we, we have one person left under 40 that's able to hold a license in Pity Arbor. So, all those fishing boats that you see trogging, in another 10 years, we'll be writing another book on those because we got 75% of our industry, and most of them in small boats that's over 55, and we have no one coming behind them in the apprenticeship program to replace them because everyone that's on the deck of our boats in Kitty Harbor cannot be in are not everyone but the vast majority are either retired from their real careers or they're forced to work real careers outside the fishery because we fish for 10 days a year so uh things need to change but this, this is a little bit off topic because I was a little bit caught off there but period began in front of me it was a bit a bit coincidental but I said I'll, I'll get that out there I said uh a lot, a lot of the leaders in the industry, like uh, the leader of the certification board, when he addresses the public, he probably should consult these public relations teams first to, uh, to verse them in what to say. Because in his most recent the weekend in this federal federal government funding that they're looking for for our, for our industry, he was very deceitful. He kept saying how... All the people in our boats are encouraged to work outside the fishery during the off season. He was, he is 100% right, but what he failed to say is that he also can work full time outside the fishery for 12 months a year once they become level one or level two. And this hypothetical fishing season that he keep referring to, to the House of Assembly and to the Senate members, that only applies to people in the program right now who are trying to advance. It doesn't apply to nobody else in the industry. This this EI, the federal funding. This is the backbone of the province. This needs to come into the province. People inside the overpass don't see that, but we have people in rural communities. The EI keep keep these communities going. So we need to make sure it gets into the hands of the people that need it. They're trying to force it into my hand. I don't need it right now. I'm fortunate enough. I grew up on it. They put food on my table. The TAGS program trained me to be diversified. They learned me the skills to be diversified. The millions and millions of the taxpayers' dollars went into the TAGS program now. The director of the board is throwing it away because it, since 1997, they won't let anybody that's diversified advance in their program. And They're throwing out fear tactics. It's because we will buy up the industry. We are not. We are not the uh, plague in the industry. We are the medicine to get in the industry back in, back into the hands, not back into the hands, for the first time ever, into the hands of the people who actually fish, and the processors will be under our columns. We can change the industry. We'll let our offshore boats, the hardworking men and women on our offshore boats that fish the majority of the year, they can compete with the corporate. They're powerful enough to do it. They have their products to do it. They can they can keep the corporate at bay, and we can rebuild we can rebuild the future, and we won't become extinct here in communities like Pity Harbour and all across rural Newfoundland in another uh, in another 10, ten to fifteen years. But adjusting a hypothetical fishing season that doesn't apply to fishermen, this past. 15 years. That's all their efforts went into. That's a very narrow-minded approach, and that's what—that's not what industry leaders are supposed to do. Industry leaders are supposed to listen to the people around them. They're supposed to take a voice in the uh, in the most recent most recent efforts to uh, to get this rule changed. I had letters from over half their inshore council, handwritten letters, supporting exactly what I'm saying, because a blind man could see what I'm saying. And instead of consulting them. The, the president and the voice chair of the certification board went straight to the House of Assembly and then addressed the Senate members and expressed constre- extreme concern over allowing people in the apprenticeship program to advance without becoming unemployed for a hypothetical efficiencies and that doesn't apply to anybody else in the industry. So if that's proper leadership... I would like I would like I would like to see their core values because every other industry that all of us on the decks of our boats are in, our core values are built around honesty, integrity, treating people treat treating people with respect. Those are core values. I can't even find them on their site. Maybe they exist, but I would love to I would love to see them and more importantly than seeing them, I would love to see them practice them because Allow three kicking kick one and kissing another. That's that's not example of fairness. And, that's not an example of fairness and equality. And they're they're not they're not the, they're not stunned people. They know exactly what they're doing. They're protecting the interest. I'm, I believe me, and you talked about it before, Patty. These shore skippers. Well, in 1997, when uh, a minority voted in this rule, I think there was probably 5,000 harvesters out of 24 registered fish harvesters at the time voted in this rule that allowed that allowed allowed people to start working full-time outside the industry in light of the bag program but the troll rule in there that prevented anyone from entering the program at the time that's that, that uh, that's pretty contradictory and totally lacks logic and it's counterintuitive if you uh, if you ask me it's certainly not an example of rules that are designed around fairness and equality it works great for the large. The larger boats, the hardworking men and women on those larger boats, they spend five months in an apprenticeship program, or sorry, five years in an apprenticeship program. During the hypothetical fishing season, just throwing rough numbers out there, they may make 50 grand. So they don't have to work outside the fishery during that, those months. So at 16 they start the program, at 22 they finish it, then they can move on to their own to, to their to their other careers, and they can come by our inshore licenses and fish them on the side. But the guys that are actually on the deck of our boats and the women that are actually on the deck of deck of our boats during that same during that same short time period, we have to work outside of fishery because we make five, we make probably five thousand to ten thousand dollars, and we cannot sell for five to ten thousand dollars and then going then going on ER. We we need to work. We are forced to go to work. We are the eager and aggressive. That we trapmen, we come from trap families that competed in a competitive fishery with with the with the largest largest fishermen in the, in the province. The the sad part about it is because our families were so good, they were so eager, they were so aggressive, they didn't need to join the mobile fleet. They didn't they didn't qualify for supplementary licenses because they made a good living in the cod fishery from from cod fishing. But right now we are all on individual quotas and we have no product to fish. So they're they're same, they're the same families and the same offspring. We we need to be eager and aggressive. We go to all rigs, we go to supply boats, we we go to trades, we go to other other industries, and we make a living and we put food on our table. But we are still 100% committed to the fishery. The uh, the directors answered to me on this. He said, "Well, Ron, those 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 young people they deserve it because they earned it. right, they've proven themselves in the industry." That they, they should be able to work full-time outside the industry and hold your license because they've proven it. You keep comparing yourself to them is what he tells me. So I'm 26 years in a fishing boat, and I supervise those same people in my in, my, uh, in my other industry offshore, but apparently I didn't deserve that rate in the director's eyes. So I think it's time the director had his eyes wiped out.
1: Look, fair enough. Did you want to make a very specific comment about Greg Pretty in Ottawa before I t- uh, take another call?
11: The big thing I would say about Craig Pretty in Ottawa, he need, he needs full support here right now. We may all have our personal biases, our personal opinions, but right now, he is the person that is representing us to go to Ottawa, and he needs to take home federal funding to to those to those rural communities because that's what that's the backbone. We the the, the, uh, the economy or the, uh, the economy can't be can't be based on furries of crash. The uh, financial forecast can't be. Based on the, on the uh, price of crab because it's volatile, but it's a fixed number. They know they can look, they can look at statistics, and they can see the number of people that are going to be on EI. The or They can see the number, the, the amount of money that's coming in, and they they can base their budgets. They can balance their budgets based on it. But they cannot do it on crab. So this this is key to everyone outside the overpass. But it just needs to be handled right, it needs it needs to, need to get to the hands of the people of the people that depend on it, the people that need it. It's, I don't need it right now. I'm fortunate, and no, not no, no does the majority of the people on small on small fishing boats. They just need to be they just need to be able to advance within a fair set of rules that's applied equally to everyone. And we will get we will take back control of the industry. We we are we have people like Jasmine Paul from. Uh, from Cole, we have we have Lil, who just uh, developed this Roots and Wings program. We have Alicia Warford here in our community. They, they are all well-educated, highly-educated, highly-educated individuals. They don't need some shore skipper. When 80% of the industry in 1992 never had formal education, there were some of the smartest people in the world. They moved houses across Placentia Bay. That would take us and engineers years to try to develop, to try to develop. Uh, drawings and plans for it and they don't they don't they it based, based on hard work and hard work and et- ethics. But these young people these young people coming in out of highly educated people, they don't need some source keeper that dedicated himself to op- to work in an office building for twelve months a year and designate an operator for the rest of his life loy- yearly. While, while while he also made a rule that said the rest of us could only get sick for uh, okay. Five years before we're forced to sell our enterprises, they don't need them. We, they don't need them representing them anymore. They can sail into the sunset, and people like people like Alicia, Alicia Warford here in our community, Jasmine Paul. They can take the helm. They can steer. They can steer me. I don't. I don't need this short skipper to steer me.
1: I appreciate the time, Ryan. Thanks for this. Thank you, Woody. You're welcome. Take care. Bye bye. Uh, before we get to break, we're going to get to stand. Let's go to five. Stand, you're on the air.
12: Petty, sir. I'm going to call about parking. We all know what health science is like in there. But St. Clair's now got a system out there that I didn't know anything about. I was out there Wednesday, parked in a blue zone in front. I was lucky someone pulled out while I was there. Mm-hmm. And we got a we got a parking permit for that. And uh, I dropped my patient off there, and we went inside and registered, and she had to get an X-ray and wait and see the doctor. We were there about two and a half hours. And I, in the waiting area, the lady was explaining to her father what she had to do for parking. I said, excuse me, you, you had had to pay for parking? Yes, she said. I said, I didn't see anything there. Well, she said, you could get a ticket. I said, I didn't know anything about parking out there. I've been out here a few times now and didn't have to pay for parking because the meters are all gone, stolen, and beat up and everything else over the years. And anyway, uh, on the way out, I talked to security. Oh, yeah, he said, you might have a parking permit, a parking ticket there now. He said, it could be just a warning or you could have a ticket. And uh, I understood it could be $50. Anyway, uh... I didn't have a ticket. Great. But the thing is, you've got to go and take a, a, a picture of your license plate, go to this machine that's inside, and key it all in, and estimate how long you're going to be there. Now, how in the hell are you going to guess how long you're going to be there? Especially if you park there and go to ER, which I've been there. I've been down to ER, and I've been in St. Clair's in the ER, and i there 21 hours in St. Clair in health science. So how can you guess how long you're going to be there? Now, I guess you're using credit cards, so you, you say you're coming right. here two hours and you're there three, they'll take it off your credit card. That's right. You say you're coming here three and you're only there one, you don't get no money back. That's what I understood too.
1: Yeah, it's either you get a reimbursement or you have to worry up if you're there longer than you thought.
12: But, Patty, I, didn't, I listen to your show every day in the house around in my car when I'm out and I never heard anybody saying anything about this parking out there that's changed. It started first June day I stood and I could have got a fifty dollar ticket and it's just it's not my stupidity. it's just that I didn't hear anything about it. And petty, how many people got cell phones? How many people don't have cell phones? And how many people don't have credit cards if that's what they really got to use there? There's no warning that that the system is, is is installed out there.
1: Well, there has to be fairness, right? I mean, you have to let people know that a change has happened and the implications of, whether that be through signage in the parking lot, signage at the door, so that you know what you're going to face with the potential for a ticket. So I get that point, yeah?
12: Yeah, I didn't see it because I parked right in front. I, I was lucky to get a blue zone. And I was gone in and registered and all that and, and didn't know anything about until I see this lady talking to her father there right next to me, and that's how I found out about it. Now, it could be signs out there somewhere, but I didn't see them where I parked too. You know, I don't mind paying. I've been in the health science that many times, Paddy. Uh, I, I could buy a new car on the money I spent in there, I think. I've been in there for 21 hours, but you don't have to pay. You, you only pay for, uh, like, probably 12 hours if you're in there that, a full day in the health science. You know, and I've been in there twice, Paddy, over the years when my uh, special... Uh, in- <laughs> well, like I said, uh, I've been in there a couple of times, and I parked over on the Avro Mall parking lot and had to get a taxi over. I, I was on the parking lot and couldn't find a spot. I had to give the car back to the chap there, and said I can't find a spot. And I've over been over to the Avalon uh, Mall Park twice, and got a taxi over. Now, I don't thing... mind that because I probably would have paid the same money on the parking lot. <laughs>
1: That's right.
12: Well, you know, but I, I'm not talking about that money. I'm talking about the, the it, what I had to do: drive over there, park my car. Now over there, and and, and the Avalon parking lot, someone could break into it even though it's locked up. It's that far away from where I should. I should be on the parking lot, but you can't. And now they're building a new hospital in there. What are we all going to park to?
1: Uh, Look, the St. Clair's issue, I was unaware, because I haven't been to St. Clair's in quite a long time, but I've been in and out of the health sciences recently. The best advancement there, I mean, it's always been difficult to park. It's only going to get worse now when they complete the mental health and addictions facility. But at least we don't have to walk in and out all day feeding meters these days, which I think has been an advancement, even though it's frustrating. Yeah,
12: I I, I didn't mind that. You know, that that was a nuisance, too. Someone get a ticket, they don't know how long they're going to be there. But it's 75 cents an hour. That's nothing. I I don't mind paying that. I've been there for hours. I paid them three bucks. I don't mind that. That's that's fair. That's cheaper than you're going to pay on the main line. But the thing is, getting a place to park in there. I often, when the wife was in hospital in there, I went there at 8 o'clock in the morning to to get a parking spot Mm -hmm. and couldn't see her till 11
1: yeah, I know. It's the furthest thing from easy. That is for bloody well, sure. Uh, Stan, I'm sure people who are going to be in and out of St. Clair's appreciate the heads up you've offered
12: Yeah, I hope anybody uh, that do go out there okay. uh, got that information now and don't end up with a ticket. 100%.
1: Thanks, 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 thanks for that. So thanks for the time. Take
12: Keep up the good job, buddy.
1: Thanks, man. All the best. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. All right, break time. When we come back, Don's still there, wants to talk about the taxi industry. Then Daniel, FixLink. We don't get enough FixLink conversation. Then we're going to speak with Andrew Holland from the Nature Conservancy of Canada. He's their national spokesperson. Don't go away. Welcome back. Let's go to line number four. Good morning, Don. You're on the air. Good morning, Paddy. How are you? Top shelf today. How are you doing? That's good. That's good.
13: Paddy, I'm wondering if you could help me understand something or clarify something for me. I'm I'm all for new and improvement, but our our government and our province are always there to say that they'll help support an industry. Bringing Uber to Newfoundland, what does that mean for the taxi industry as we know it today?
1: It won't be helpful. It'll be helpful for the riding public, whether it be in a taxi or in an Uber. But I imagine it complicates things further for the taxi drivers. Yeah.
13: Well, the, the problem, the problem I, the problem I have with it, I see, I see the problem in the taxi industry being the insurance as being the biggest problem. Why there's a shortage in taxi cars and drivers in our industry? So, if an Uber driver, you you just met a comment a couple of minutes ago about. About someone in your newsroom, if they wanted to go do Uber for a couple hours, they could. But the, the, the question I, I'd like to put forward to you, when I'm in my private vehicle, I'm charged for my insurance according to my driver's abstract. And my insurance is pretty cheap. As soon as I get in my taxi vehicle, I'm paying six to seven times the amount for taxi insurance. I'm the same person. My driver's abstract never changed. But immediately when I get in my taxi vehicle, I'm deemed high risk. So does an Uber driver have to have the same coverage of insurance as what I do?
1: The mayor of St. John's and I had a look around at this. They do indeed find themselves in a different category. I don't think they're automatically into facility <laughs> like taxi drivers, which I've long said doesn't make any sense. You can't be simply high risk because of what you do. Now, would your driver's abstract rule today? It should. Is there a higher risk with being a taxi driver with the amount of time you spend down the road? Sure, but let's let the actuarials figure that out as opposed to automatically say, well, this person's going to be a dangerous driver because they're driving a jiffy or a newfound or whoever or whatever. So it's a good question, but it's got to be a level playing field because if not, an industry that's already struggling is going to be wiped out.
13: Patty, Patty, I, I'm going to, like I said, I'm all for new and improvement and I'm more than willing to get on board what, for something that that makes improvements to our industry but like what people don't realize doordash and skip the dishes and all these places that stuff is also having an impact on our industry because once upon a time you'd bring a fella to a restaurant or you'd bring him to a tim hortons you know to pick up and 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 it's great it's pretty convenient but the question i'd like to propose i changed over an insurance policy for my mom yesterday she got a new vehicle and the first question that was proposed to me was, "Are you using this vehicle for commercial use? How much are you going to be driving it?" And, and you know, you know what you go through the, when you put insurance on. Who's regulating all these Skip The Dishes and DoorDash companies? I think somebody to phone our insurance company carriers here in the province and say, "Hey, listen, you know, there's there's literally thousands and thousands of Skip The Dishes and, and DoorDash drivers in our province." Like, are the insurance companies aware of, that this is going? And I'm not trying to put a knock against them. Yes, no, they I, do.
1: That's the short answer.
13: I, I, well, I, I just wanna I just wanna be able to have like I'm being penalized for being in an industry for 28 years, and I haven't got a parking ticket. And, and they're talking about now bringing bringing Uber here, and that's going to put away the my that's going to put an end to my way of life. And I don't have, I don't have another source of income. I, I hang my hat on the taxi industry. And like, why don't, why don't our province and our and, and our and the city of St. John step up and say, hey? A few years ago, we had a taxi association, and we were actually making movements and sitting down with our government, and they were working with us. And then they just abolished the taxi industry. They abolished the taxi association. Like the taxi, the taxi industry as we know it if uber comes and lands in the city of st john's we're, we're done we're out of business
1: i totally understand you know this move is being made for the uh customer not for the industry and you're 100 right if it takes off and more and more people are looking to subsidize their income because the cost of living is out of control so people think well let me do the math on this if i have to pay more for insurance and more for maintenance and upkeep of my vehicle and i have to work maybe 10 hours a week the guys sitting at the cab stand or over at 22 on the holiday or wherever they're sitting as a group of cab drivers, they're going to get fewer and fewer calls. It just stands to reason. Like, I will admit, when I go elsewhere, I arrive at Toronto's Pearson International, I land in Montreal, I get an Uber every time because it's easy, it's quicker, and I can tell exactly when they're going to pull up to the door, even though the cabs are lined up right there. Don, last word to you before I go.
13: Uh, that's it. I just I just hope that... that all that's involved in this, they they try to do their best to protect the public, the consumer, and, and the industry that's been here in our province, servicing our province, and our little small communities over the years. And I just hope it don't put an end to my way of life. That's all.
1: I appreciate the time, Dan. Good luck.
13: Thank you. You're
1: welcome. All the best. Bye-bye. All right. Uh, when we come back, uh, Daniel's still there. Talk fix, Link Come into it. And also, Greg Paris is in the queue. Greg Parsons was sentenced to life in prison for the 1991 murder of his mother, Catherine Carroll. He was in prison for a couple of months before being released on bail, pending appeal. And now we know Brian Doyle killed her. There's been lots of controversy about where he's been incarcerated. Granted, day parole, and he failed to release information about a romantic relationship. Back into the clink, now day parole again. Greg Parsons has questions. So do I. Don't go away
0: nutrition exercise keeping the cold at bay whatever keeps you feeling great the wellness and healthy lifestyle show on your VOCM welcome
1: back to the program let's begin this hour on line number two good morning Greg Parsons you're on the air
14: good morning thanks for having me on
1: again happy to have you on Greg I mean it's always a difficult conversation I'm sure it just makes you relive a lot of dark times in your life but your initial reaction to the fact that Doyle is getting day parole again
14: Well, we were prepared for it, and uh, we're not surprised at all, but... I just feel for the community that he's going to be uh, released into, but uh, uh, as you said before, he was out on his same type of day parole before, and uh, within seven months he breached it and they put him back in, and there was another uh, hearing which I had to write another impact statement, and uh, uh, I think this one now was like sixth or seventh. but uh, the good thing about the last parole hearing, he was finally backed into a corner, and he finally did admit that there was a sexual uh, intent, a sexual aspect. To crime, And uh, this is what I've been saying all along. Uh, um, the, my uh, public inquiry was a sham. It was cover-up. Um, uh, thank God Bob Johnson gave me the, the, the chief of police before he passed. He gave me the full Mr. Big Sting. And uh, right now the biggest goal that we have, well, the last goal that we have is to have that reviewed. Um, uh, the public inquiry, as I said, was a sham. But uh, I, w- I would like to at least to have uh, an external judicial review of the uh, plea deal. Uh, he ended up only doing six or seven years in prison. Then he ended up in the William Head Institute institution. I. I- Recommend your uh, viewers look that up to believe head institution. It's club fed. It is the uh, minimum security prison, it's the cushiest prison in Canada. So, uh, uh, there's answers that got to be done because uh, um, we pro- provided all this evidence to the parole board and, the, and it was, I think it's the first time in Canada that the parole board actually recognised the evidence, uh, well, accepted the evidence and uh, reviewed it. Now they couldn't increase the sentence or anything like that, but they had tools in front of them that they needed to, just, to see the sexual aspect, to see that it was actually first-degree murder, that he took shoes from, Party went over and committed the crime. Walked back to the party, put the shoes back, and lied down for a nap for his alibi. All this was suppressed by the, by the crown, uh, and it wasn't a part of my public inquiry. Like, we had the, the ultimate opportunity here to review an apple to an orange. We had the real murderer and someone wrongfully convicted, and all this evidence. Uh, from the Mr. Big was covered up. It it uh, wasn't for Bob Johnson. Never would have known. And people got a lot of questions to answer. Who knew what went? And uh, people that uh, were representing me, I'm so disappointed I should have been advised... They knew they had to know about this Mr. Big uh, information, and as I said, I'm after asking before publicly for the the Premier Fury to uh, have a talk with me to see if we can get some type of review done. And uh, to no avail, Uh, once again, I'm reaching out to the Premier to please uh, get in touch with me so we can have a meeting, uh, so we can work out if we can get some type of review. Uh, If not, my next step is I'm going to have to go through the new uh, uh, David Milgaard law, looking into wrongful convictions and see if I can uh, apply for that, even if I can just get him to look at the aspect of the uh, second-degree plea deal or... All this evidence was suppressed from the uh, from the judge, the, the sentencing judge, and uh, as I said earlier, Brian Doyle finally admitted the sexual nature of it, so when they put him back in, he finally got the treatment for sexual nature. Now, it was only f- uh, three months of uh, uh, counselling for it, but uh, it's... They had the proper tools from day one. He would have been put in a proper prison, and uh, the proper resources would have been there. But no, this was another cover-up by the, by the Crown's office, by the justice system here in Newfoundland, to save face and do favors for friends. And I just, just want to say I feel so betrayed by this whole system.
1: I I would imagine you do. I mean the board even says that they still have concerns about his pattern of lying and deception and still gave him uh, this day parole knowing that he finally admitted the sexual component and had all of this information been in front of the courts it's hard to believe there would have been any plea deal arrived at convicting him of second degree murder. Just makes no sense. Just a quick question here. If it gets further examination or some inquiry into it, I don't even know if that means a judicial inquiry. To what end, Gregory? Is it to expose those who shrouded the evidence or what would be the intended goal of that?
14: Patty, the biggest goal is when something happens wrong in life, in the world. When, when uh, Chernobyl happens, there is an the investigation. You, you have to learn by these mistakes and move forward. Uh, where did this train go off the rails, and how, how can we prevent this from happening, then happening again? That, that is the, the end goal. Uh, the story is out there. Uh, the last documentary was on uh, W five, and uh, if anyone did miss that, any of the reviewers missed it, uh, you can uh, just get on YouTube and type my name and uh, the show is there. Uh, Avery Hayes, Hayes did, a, Haynes did a great job on the show, but uh, and, until this review is done, there's only so far that the show can even go, but... Uh, You'll get a good gist of it from from the show but uh, that's that's the last thing i'm i'm asked for a simple judicial ex- from a judge out the province obviously uh, look at the evidence that was suppressed um in in the uh, what do they call it the uh uh, statement, of uh, facts of evidence statement. They were, they were left out of the facts of evidence for that uh, judge to use those tools to properly sentence Doyle.
1: What could utilizing the Milgard law do for you? I, I'm, I know I asked that a bit out of ignorance because I'm not exactly sure how that would be applied. What would that mean?
14: Well, the Milgaard Law is a law now basically reviewing, looking into harmful convictions. Uh, I would suggest that most of these people are, are still in jail and they're investigating those, but uh, I I don't know if there's anything stop, stopping me from uh, producing the evidence that I have had. Uh, the work that my wife and I have done over the years is... is Oh, so unbelievable uh, but to have them review this evidence and, 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 and ask the, the, the serious questions like how the hell could you cover up the boots and the fact that, that uh, uh, he broke in and went back and, and the, the, the most ridiculous thing and, and uh, the, the, such an insult to my mom is uh, he said in the parole comp- uh, board a couple of years ago that uh, he was in a relationship with my mother and he was supposed to meet with her that night yeah, when you go to meet someone, you ring the front doorbell, you don't go in and bust into the basement window and take all your clothes off in a room and take a knife and go jump in bed. That's, it, it's just so ludicrous. Like, I want to stop doing that kind of kind of stuff and just get out with life. life. I'm done with it, but I, I do want to review it on.
1: I don't know even how to ask this. So if what you want to be done gets done, an external review, a judge out of province... Will that allow you to move on or have you moved on? And I'm not even sure how I mean that question to be heard in your head, but I think you know what I'm getting at.
14: I, I know exactly what you're getting at, and, and I, I have moved on. My, um, I'm, I'm struggling with other. Issues uh, not dealing with uh, this at all. It's another issue in my life now, totally uh, separate. But uh, unfortunately, I have taken focus away from my work at this. But my work at this is done. I've, I've collected all the, the evidence. All I got to do is put it into the hands of uh, the, the proper investigator and and uh, have a report on, so we can learn from the mistakes. The, the only thing we learn is that uh, the Newfoundland uh, the justice system is good at covering up
1: it's mind-boggling as to how like who thought there was a benefit to anybody including you including your mother including the system to do anything but fully disclose every component of the crime and the big sting uh the mr big sting and what that involved like I, i don't even know where the motivation would be it just seems incomprehensible
14: well the motivation was to say face, to do favors for crime crown prosecutors doing favors for friends, like do- there, there there was many motivations in there and people people made the, the careers off me and it's ridiculous my, my mom's justice was stolen for other people's benefit and then it's it's just unfair so uh, if people do want to help me uh, please by all means call the Premier's office and say that uh, give Greg his meeting uh, I don't know I'll probably try to get something like a survey monkey put up uh, so people can... Uh, Uh, make votes for the Premier to to, uh, meet with me, but I'm I'm two or three years now asking this man to meet with me. Could you please uh, give me the dignity uh, and uh, the the recognition that uh, so so, uh, we can put this to bed?
1: I hope that you get what you're asking for. It seems completely legitimate and required. Uh, Greg, it's nice to have you on. Hope you're doing okay with whatever else you're dealing with.
14: Yeah, well, thank you very much, Patty. Take care of yourself. You
1: too. Okay. Bye. Bye-bye. What a story. Uh, unbelievable. Uh, let's go ahead and take this break. Uh, Andrew Holland, you up next. He's the national spokesperson for the Na- Nature Conservancy of Canada. Then, Daniel, you stay right there to talk a little fixling. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number six and say good morning to Andrew Holland, national spokesperson for the Nature Conservancy of Canada. Good morning, Andrew. You're on the air.
15: Hi, Patty. How are
1: you today? Not too bad, I think. How about you?
15: Well, pretty good. Happy Friday.
1: Yes, happy Friday. Not a day too soon. <laughs> okay, let's get to it. We'll talk about a couple of things in this province, but let's, talk, uh, let's start with Canada's prairie grasslands. The uh, information that I got off of your website, and this has nothing to do with fire or what have you, we've actually lost somewhere in the neighborhood 80% of the grasslands, in Saskatchewan, Alberta, and Manitoba. First off, how and why is that the case?
15: Well, uh, first of all, thank you for the opportunity and today for for having me on. It's been a, a few years, and always enjoy talking to you and your listeners across the province. Um, yeah, it, it's significant, Patty. But frankly, we've had, uh, you know, if, if, let's go back maybe forty years. Canada had sixty thousand hectares of, uh, sorry, sixty million hectares of prairie grasslands in Canada, and that ranges from the eastern Soft slopes of the Canadian Rockies through to Winnipeg and then even north of Edmonton and and Saskatoon. Well, right now we've lost 82% of these native prairie grasslands uh, to the point that less than 11 million hectares remains. And basically, we lose about, for every, you watch your favorite TV show for a half an hour, we lose the equivalent of 12 CFL-sized football fields during that half hour. We lose 270 uh, CFL football-sized fields a day uh, in the prairies, uh, and that's that's due to conversion to human use, croplands, planting crops, suburban development, uh, people getting out of the cattle industry and they're selling these lands or converting it from cattle uh, operations to croplands.
1: So (laughs) this will be the epitome of a stupid question, but you know, the ecosystem is a very delicate tap dance. You know, whether it be with biodiversity or otherwise, so describe what the concern will be, because whenever you lose grasslands, it's obviously comes with major implications to the ecosystem, but what specifically are we focusing on here as the the long-term implications?
15: Well, there's a lo- There's many different ones, I guess. Grassland birds uh, have declined ninety percent uh, in the last fifty years. So we've seen bird decline because of the loss of habitat. So that's that's one issue that we've seen. Uh, the remainder of these eleven million uh, hectares scattered across the three prairie provinces, they're fragmented into smaller parcels. So they're not great, uh, full you know full intact areas for, for, for birds and other wildlife. But the other thing, too, is, and we've seen these wildfires all across the country, really, this, this past two or three weeks, and, and these are forests that are going up, and it's releasing carbon into the atmosphere. Well, that sort of highlights the importance of these native prairie grasslands, because their deep root systems, Patty, they sequester carbon deep under the ground, making it more safer. So that sort of highlights why we need to focus even more on native prairie grasslands because that carbon won't come out of the ground. When you see wildfires in so many provinces, New Brunswick, Nova Scotia, Quebec, Ontario, uh, you know, B.C., uh, Alberta and northern Saskatchewan, uh, you know, in the last two or three weeks, it sort of underscores the importance of protecting these grasslands because, uh, the carbon stays in the ground.
1: So, what's the plan? Is this through legislative protections, or what is the plan?
15: Well, Nature Conservancy of Canada, because this is a uh, Canadian Environment Week, uh, our organization has launched an action plan to protect five hundred thousand hectares of native prairie grasslands by 2030, and it's a it's a five hundred million dollar. Uh, action plan to raise money from all levels of government foundations the private sector you name it to try and uh, get some more agreements on these lands so that means people that are you know farming using these properties as uh, for uh, grazing cattle grazing and, and cattle ranching to sign agreements with them so that it's legal continuing so these are, can continue to be working landscapes, but ideally they're not lost to development or, uh, or crop uh, planting type things. So that way we're saving the best of what's left and hopefully restoring uh, more grasslands uh, because it's really important. We're running out of time, plain and simple. Uh, you know, we're losing, uh, you know, here in Atlanta, Canada, we use the word acres a lot versus hectares but we lose you know the equivalent of a hundred thousand CFL fields annually of native prairie grasslands.
1: Uh, before we run out of time, uh, any update on some of the projects you're working on here? I think your organization has led the charge protecting somewhere in the neighborhood of 6,000 hectares of land if I remember the numbers correctly, whether it be up the Salmon Air Line or the Grand Cotroy Estuary or otherwise. Any update you'd like to offer regarding your work here in the province?
15: Absolutely, yeah. We're we're up over fourteen thousand uh, acres uh, in the province since nineteen ninety six. Uh, Thirty five different projects, uh, Nature Conservancy of Canada has undertaken uh, since then. Uh, you know, within your listening area, you mentioned the Grand Codroy Valley. That's an active area where we have a, a nature reserve that's used for hiking, walking, uh, bird watching, berry picking, nature appreciation. So there's nine properties. Uh, There are many different properties over on the western side of the province. And, you know, on the Avalon Peninsula, we've been active there since really 2001. We did a project in Lundrigan's Marsh, uh, giving monetarily to that project that's owned by the city of St. John's. Uh, We have a project in the town of Torbay. Uh, And then in Salmonier, you know, our nature reserve there we're, we're in the midst of expanding that to over 407 hectares which is bigger uh than central park in new york city to put an analogy on it uh adding uh 230 hectares along the Salmonier arm of uh, st mary's bay uh so as your listeners will know um uh, patty um you know this is this is a really beautiful area it's it's known for its large runs of Atlantic salmon, but it's also got, you know, one of the rare lichen in the world called the boreal felt lichen. There's peregrine falcon, uh, red foxes there, different bird species at risk. And so uh, the Salmonere Nature Reserve of the Nature Conservancy of Canada, it neighbors the Avalon Wilderness Reserve, and so that protects, uh, that helps provide protection for the Avalon herd of woodland caribou. And so we're raising money through what's called the Keep the Rock Rugged campaign, to raise more money as a charity to do more uh, stewardship and land protection uh, in the Salmonier River area. And our properties, Patty, are open for people to use to walk their dogs on a leash, bird watching, berry picking, nature photography. Uh, so that's that's the current effort right now is to expand that Salmonier River. Uh, nature Reserve, and we we sent out a, a brochure to all of the homeowners uh, in that area to sort of highlight what we're doing and how they can learn more.
1: Really appreciate the time and the work you're doing. Thanks for this, Andrew. Talk again soon.
15: Excellent. Have a great weekend to you and all your listeners.
1: Same to you. Thank you. Thank you. Take care. Bye-bye. Sandra Holland, National Spokesper- Spokesperson for the Nature Conservancy of Canada. All right. Uh, time for the news. If you're in the queue, stay right there. Don't go away.
0: You're busy, but you'll never be uninformed. Get up to date on the way home. The Drive on your VOCM.
1: Welcome back to the show. Let's go. Line number one, Daniel, you're on the air. Hello. Hello. Appreciate the patience, sir. What's on your mind?
16: Oh, that's okay, Patty. But, oh, uh, no, I haven't called it for a long time. I was wondering, don't seem to be much talk about a fixed link on your program for a long time. I was wondering what's happening because only uh, a couple of weeks ago there I was listening and there was a comment by Tony Marie about uh, the fixed link issue was back on the table and somebody there was a politician from Labrador was taking it over to push it. I don't know if you heard that for...
1: Well, uh, the short answer to what's happening is, as far as we know, nothing. The thing that put it back on the radar is that the federal liberals at their policy convention, they said it's a priority. They put it in the hands of the Infrastructure Bank of Canada. But what they've done since that, we don't really know because they haven't really said anything about it. Because a policy convention issue doesn't really mean a whole, whole lot. They can say it's a priority, but it only becomes a priority if they act on it. So most people think next thing to do is go out to the market, to the engineering companies that are in this business bring forward a business model whether or not it looks like the bridge the confederation bridge from pei to the mainland or whatever the next steps are but it's been examined a couple of times but i don't think it's uh, seen any move since the federal liberals said it's a priority that nation building exercise so short answer is i don't know if anything's happening
16: well patty i think there's, there's needed more in land now I'm, I'm getting up my age i'm 80 soon be 86 years old and I've never seen this province need it as bad as it needs it right now. It always needed from people that knows uh, a lot more about it than I do and more, a lot better informed, eh? But, uh, you know, I, I don't understand why the politicians don't make a statement on it. So, because, I mean, it looks like the provincial government got to ask for it in order for anything to happen, you know.
1: Yeah. So, why, in your opinion, Daniel, is it required more than ever?
16: Because if we look at the, at food, uh, the vegetables and fruits and everything coming in the, in the province, twenty twenty six percent of it, I'm told, is thrown away, and and the travel. I've talked to people. I've talked to people that have moved there, around here in those areas, and they've talked. But the worst they see here is the isolation. You know, if they could get in their car and drive, uh, uh, probably see their friends on the mainland or move if they want to move, stuff like that. It it wouldn't be half as bad. You know, at least they'd have an uh, entrance. Not not a, everybody can pull a handful of money out of their pocket and jump on a plane, which is certainly a good service too. And I'm not knocking that. Don't worry. But uh, I mean, these are, these are some of the things. You know. I mean, it is ridiculous as far as I'm concerned what is happening to this province just because because of politics, that's most of it, or that's the way I see it. You know, the, the, the politics there is almost about the same as, as Trump's politics down in the United States. Because I know when the issue was on the table there a few years ago, my God, we was all that upset. I mean, everybody was fighting everybody and running to see if they could get some something to to shore up their idea, you know. And you that me, you too, Patty, and I got great respect for you. Don't get me wrong. You got a right to your opinion like I have.
1: What opinion are you talking about belongs talking to me? You, <laughs>
16: you was dead set against it. You know, you, you, know, you certainly was. Eh? But I know that a fixed link will do just as uh, it will make... Create miracles for all over the island, for St. John's as well as anywhere, anywhere else, and I hope it do too. Yeah, I don't. It, ever happens. And I, it won't happen in my time, but it might happen sometime down the road.
1: I don't think I've ever had a position of dead set against or dead set for because I don't think we even have enough information about how. Well, it
16: would I mean, work. we were phoning all. Excuse me, I didn't mean to do that. That's okay. We was fooling all over Everybody was fooling all over the place to get support for their idea. I mean, fooling mayors and everybody else was involved. It was in a fighting frenzy almost. I mean, I know going around talking to people, people that was against it. You know, was pretty adamant about their their ideas. But uh, as far as I'm concerned, you know, it was a bad move because it's a thing that worked miracles for Newfoundland. And you, I'll I'll tell you this that in 20 years or 20 years' time, the population in Newfoundland will be the same as it is now or lower. It'll go down. A lot of the people move out. And this is some of the problem, the isolation, you know. uh, As far as I'm concerned, unless somebody can take the bull by the horns and and do a fixed link— this place will always be in the same spot long after I'm gone for the next hundred years. Or that's, the way, that's my opinion, but now, Patty, you got to write to yours, too.
1: Well, I'm glad you called to share your opinion on the show this morning. It but, would be no question great for people in Labrador. No doubt about that, right? For every yeah. reason imaginable. So my questions would be the obvious ones. Who builds it for how much? What's my financial commitment as a taxpayer in this uh, in this province? Are the feds involved? What the toll might look like? What highway network might need to be upgraded on the Great Northern Peninsula? Who is getting involved in completing r- Route 138 so you can actually get to the link? Those are just questions. That doesn't mean well, I think it's a stupid idea. It just means that I think there's a lot more yet to be I understood. Think
16: one I think if you look at since when I was a boy back in the 50s, Paddy, I remember people leaving dinner going to a used-be- Called Knob Lake, where they used to, where they started off the R&R mines, eh? Okay. And they they were working down there ever since. The money been coming out of Labrador ever since. And uh, and then we have Churchill Falls, and then the different mines and minerals that's coming up there now. You know, I mean, you know, it certainly it certainly justifies that it's just because of money. That shouldn't be a problem. If you look at the riches of the Labrador, well, what do we do? Suck the system dry, and when it's gone, say, well, boy, it does not work putting the one across, you know. Is that what, is that what somebody is waiting for?
1: I don't know. But you know, if-
16: I, I just hope it isn't that, you know, uh, Patty. I wish, good, I wish good things for all parts of this island, and I know all the parts of this island will benefit from the fixed link. I know enough for that, because I've talked to people that... Had a lot of experience in in, in that in the, the movement of people and whatever in the Labrador, and now would have moved back and forth over the years, working and everything else. So it's going to benefit us just as so much as it benefits Labrador. A lot more, I would say. Daniel, I'm glad you made time for the show. Would you so like I got to one else? question to ask if you wouldn't mind. Sure. I'd like to ask the forty members of the government. But the politicians, do they favor a, a, a connection to the Labrador? Do they favor a fixed link? I should say. I like from the answer to that question is good. They don't have. to. I'm only nobody, but that don't mean nothing. I'm a taxpayer. I'm a, a vote. Give. I votes and I, I pay taxes.
1: And your question. I'd like
16: to ask them sure. do they a favor the fixed link and let them do it on the public airways so everybody can hear it?
1: Happy to put it to them. And I appreciate the time, Daniel.
16: Okay, and thank you, Patty. Uh, Have oh. a nice day.
1: You too, sir. All the best. All yeah. right, bye-bye. All right, uh, before we get to the break, let's talk about Nevaeh's Angel Foundation and this year's Nevaeh's Lemonade Stand with her dad, John Denine. Good morning, John. You're on the air.
4: Yeah,
14: I'm a grandfather. But
4: grandfather. I knew, that. I knew that, John. Sorry about that. <laughs>
5: It's all good, buddy. Um yeah uh, next Saturday uh is the annual Nevea's Lemonade Stand, Nevea's Agents Foundation uh, fundraiser, I guess you call it again. Uh, you know, I just want to let everybody know that it's going to be at the Paradise Ice Complex. Rain or shine, we're going ahead with it because we're going to be inside anyways. We're going to have an antique, classic cars and they'll be able to bring their bikes there or, you know, that kind of stuff. Um, the motorcycle, we say, anybody wants to bring whatever they want to bring there, they can bring it there. And we have some tickets from WestJet, anywhere WestJet flies. Uh, other prizes like barbecues, it's gonna be bouncy castles. there's gonna be hopefully a few bands playing there. We'll still see who wants to play there for us. Uh, you know, it's gonna be a, a fun-filled time. You know,
1: usually is. I've made my way out to before so Of course, Novea was diagnosed with uh, neuroblastoma when she was just three years yeah. of age, and the yeah. lemonade stand is a great part of way to for the family and for everyone else to re- uh, to remember Navea because she was a real force of nature even even as a very young child.
5: Yeah, she always was. I mean, from I mean, I mean, I mean, I think she started wanted to start that lemonade stand when she was probably only three years old, type of thing, and just started out as a little thing. And I was supposed to start it on the line, then all of a sudden, other people wanted to get involved, and it just kept escalating. And we said, well, we can't have it on the line because then we head up to the St. Kevin's plate uh, school up Like and my God, it was I think they raised roughly twenty thousand dollars at the first one, you know. And you you must have raised in excess of a couple hundred thousand by now. I'm I'm pretty much sure probably around – I'm going to have some more figures for you next week. Okay. About a half million dollars roughly so far. So You know, and this goes to anemical uh, job. Uh, this goes to uh, families of kids uh, that have pediatric cancer type of thing, and we help them out, you know, with with some money and help to pay some bills, and maybe they need gas, place to stay. You know, uh, I mean, I, I know what it's like because I, we went through it when the VA got sick type of thing. You know, and it uh, the first thing from my mind is going to work you know and I mean I mean, like I said years, years ago I said to my daughter, don't worry about it. I said listen I got credit cards we use What we gotta do I mean you don't think about going to work I remember one year in particular I think my daughter was, was down here in, down in the hospital visiting my brother today and uh, I think she spent 282 days down in the Jamie with my granddaughter you know I mean your life changes so much I mean and the, the them few dollars that we raised to help people you know it helps them a lot you know I mean, you you give up when you got. I mean, your kids are your life. Well, your family is your life, but I mean, you know, your kids are your life. And I mean, you uh, it, 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 everything changes big time. You don't realize until it happens.
1: No doubt. How many years now will this be? I think we
5: started roughly twenty fourteen. We lost two years due to COVID. Okay. You know, and uh, so we had we had the like bingo last year and a couple of other odds and ends in that kind of way you know but uh, you know so we're hoping to get back on full track now this year and raise some money and, you know I think it's going to be a fun time like you say, we've got bouncy castles and face painting and you know so we're hoping to get a big crowd there but what I'll do is uh, Thursday or Friday of next week because I don't have much information from you right now I'll uh, I'll give you a call with some more better information onto it and you know, uh, and then see what happens from there. But hopefully we'll get a big crowd there, you know.
1: Yeah, let's hope but so. I mean, happened. the community has latched onto it and some notable people as Stephanie O'Brien or Mark Rich or the Growlers actually hosted a Neve's uh, Angel Foundation night this year, which was great.
5: So Yeah, we had, we had a great time down there at that. Yeah,
1: no <laughs> doubt. Give the folks the details where the win? one more time, John.
5: Uh, The Paradise Ice Complex next Saturday from 12 to 5. uh, Rain or shine because we'd have sun, but outside it was nice and sunny. And for the most part, especially the weather lately, well, it's just as well to have something that we can (laughs) have to be cancelling and everything else, you know. Uh, You know, it's going to be a good day. We're we're planning in our our memory because, I mean, it's going to be five years this August that she passed, you know.
1: Uh, I look forward to it, and I look forward to chatting like next week to give it one more plug.
5: Thank you, sir, thank very right. much, and I'll give you a call. And Buddy Jr. is going to be there also.
1: Oh, terrific. Thanks for this, John. <laughs> thank, you, thank you, sir. Have a good day. You too. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. All right, final break of the morning and the week. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number two. Good morning, caller. You're on the air. Good morning, caller, on line number two. You're on the air. Hi. Uh, Hello? I don't know
10: if that's me or not
1: uh yes, sir. it's you. you're on the air
10: okay uh I just got back from down the courthouse uh There was a case was we supposed to go ahead and uh, it got cancelled and uh anyway uh I, my wife was in a long term care home, and she got sexually assaulted while she was in there. Oh no and uh Anyway, there was a visitor that went into the home, and she, well, she had dementia, and uh, it took a while to get her into the home. For to get get her into the home, she had to be uh, diagnosed with dementia and a family doctor couldn't do that so I uh, had to take her to a, a specialist and it took about three months for to get that diagnosed and then I could get home care and home care didn't last very long because she advanced too far the home care workers couldn't care for her so then uh, she we got her into the home and it was about about a year after she got into all we're close to it, that this happened. And uh, it was by a, a visitor that went in there. I guess I can't give you too much information on this, so I don't think I'd be allowed to.
1: Well, you'd probably shouldn't, given the fact that there's still a court proceeding yet to be had.
10: So, no, it's it's finished. Now. So,
1: what was the what was the charge that somebody faced?
10: Sexual assault.
1: And what was the conclusion? It was dismissed.
10: Yes, because this person that done the sexual assault is claiming to have dementia, but all. All the court had, or all that was given to the district attorney, was a letter from the family doctor. Now, when my wife, when I was trying to get help for her, either home care or get into the home, uh, I took her to the family doctor, and I was told no, they could not do this. It had to be done by a geriatric psychiatrist so I think it took about three months going back to this geriatric psychiatrist for to get the paperwork done so I could get home care for her. and then when that lapsed it only took uh, I don't know five or six months of home care and then she had to go into the home and uh, that's that's the way I got her in there but uh, now this person got a letter from a family doctor stating that he might have dementia and I think a lot to do with it was the a smart liar that he had and I was told that I didn't need a, or my wife didn't need a, a, a liar because the court would look after it and the Crown Attorney would be the same as a liar for her.
1: So your wife required that length of time with a specialist for a diagnosis, but all of a sudden acceptable defense in a court of law was a letter from a family doctor.
10: Yeah. And that it got, can't appeal it. And, uh, and like the first thing that uh, was done for my wife, her driver's license was, taken away from her and as far as I know this person is still driving and, uh, but she walks way clear
1: it seems like a convoluted process to me. I mean, usually for a complex diagnosis requires the complex examination, formal diagnosis from someone beyond a family doctor, not to be smirched family doctors, but if your wife required a specialist for her diagnosis, it's funny how this person didn't require the exact same process, well, especially when I used in a court.
10: That's what I can't understand. Me neither. You know, and for just to get chopped Nothing else, there was no appeal, and I don't know, I'm I'm a bit upset about it
1: now. As you should be, and as I would be. Uh, If we had more time, we could go a little further here, but I'm really sorry to hear about not only what happened to your wife initially, but how it unfolded in the courts. It's... it's, uh, it doesn't sound like any justice was served here, and I—you can no. say something very quickly before I have to go because it's almost twelve o'clock, unfortunately, sir.
10: Well, I don't think there was any justice served there. Doesn't sound like it. But uh, I was given the option, probably going to a, a civil suit, but then there's no guarantee that I would be supplied with a liar. and. Uh, it w- might end up costing me ter- costing me thirty or $40,000, which I don't have. Mm-hmm. And uh, this person, rock free. So,
1: From what I, I know I, about it, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me, sir, and I'm really sorry that any of this happened. We just cleared 12 o'clock, so they're going to force me off the air, but I wish you well.
10: Yeah, and uh, I don't think... Uh, I'm going to be well or get anything. that. I don't see any way that I can get justice served there, because it seemed like the book was closed on it.
1: Sad state of affairs. I appreciate your time, and hopefully whatever it takes for you to, to do better, I hope that's what happens. Thank you, sir.
10: Yeah, well, thanks for listening to me. My uh, pleasure. If I can get some more information, I'll call back
1: again sometime. Uh, anytime. Okay.
10: Take thanks, that.
1: You're welcome. Bye-bye.
10: Bye.
1: Man. All hey, right. good show today. Boy, oh, boy. Uh, big thanks for everyone who supports the program, and we will indeed pick up this conversation again on Monday morning right here on VOCM and Big Land FM's Open Line. On behalf of the producer, David Williams, I'm your host, Paddy Daly. Have yourself a safe, fun, happy weekend. We'll talk Monday. Bye-bye.